Welcome to Headlines. This is Ari Wasserman sitting in for David Lichtenstein. Today we have a fascinating topic and we have a number of fascinating guests as well. We are going to be talking about what should a wife do when she has simply had it with the antics of her husband. We'll also, related issue, maybe it's the same issue at the same time, we'll be revisiting a show that we had about eight months ago called The Surrendered Wife. Should Wives Surrender? That was actually based on a book by a woman named Laura Doyle who will actually be joining us here as a guest today as well. And today's show will be somewhat of a response to those who complained about the earlier show. And today you may come out a little bit happier, but actually you may come out much more irritated than that prior show. So uh, we will get back to that in a little bit. The specific issues or some of them that we'll be covering are friends, a proper replacement for a therapist. It is a proper, instead of going to a therapist when there's shalom bias issues, to simply call up your friends, get together a group of your friends and discuss the marriage issues that you're having, what's appropriate to discuss with friends and what's not, and how should a wife handle when her husband lives a lifestyle she does not approve of? And conversely, how should the husband handle when his wife is on his case? And then a very important question, a general question, can a non-Jewish book be used for self-help, in particular Shalom Bayis? And is there a Torah Hashkafa in how to handle Shalom Bayis issues? Join us on today's show, we are going to start out with the great posik, the renowned posik, the senior lecturer at Yeshiva Sor Sameach, Rabbi Dr. Yitzhak Breidowitz. We are then going to speak with a popular speaker, lecturer, author, and the like, a therapist, Rabbi David M. Cohen. And then we will go and speak with Dr. David Lieberman, the internationally reclaimed, renowned speaker and author. And then we will speak with Rabbi Ben Sion Shafir, who is a veteran mechanic and expert in Shalom Bayes, and he has recently written an amazing book on Shalom Bias as well as available in the stores. And then we will culminate the show with Laura Doyle, the best-selling author of the book, The Surrendered Wife, and a number of other related books as well. Just to take a step back, I do want to explain why we are having this topic. Uh, over the past couple years, we've had a couple of shows on Shalom Bias. We talked about, should a wife surrender, giving in to the desires of the husband? And we talked about, should the husband surrender, giving in to the desires of the wife? And we also had, unrelated, a couple of shows about lavish lifestyles of Balabatim, the drinking that is going on, the drugs, unfortunately, smoking, kiddushim, etc., etc. And the issue here is that after those shows, I had a friend contact me, a rav of a shul, and he said as follows, he has a number of newlyweds and newly married individuals or people in their 20s, 30s, and the like, and he says you're talking about issues that are real, that are real issues that he sees in society and uh, the people who dove in him, that is indeed how they are living their lives, unfortunately. But he said, you missed the most important topic of them all, the most critical issue is what does the wife do when she has a husband who she is watching him, these antics or these behaviors, and he's literally self-destructing. How should a wife handle when she sees the husband vacationing with the guys, going on the dinners, going out to the Kiddushim, getting drunk? How should she do deal with the situation. Absolutely a critical situation. I was uh, just outside before recording this introduction. I met somebody who is from Antwerp, and he said, how common are these issues that you're talking about with the lavish lifestyles? And unfortunately, they are fairly common. They're fairly common. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. What should the wife do? It could apply also to what should the husband do? If it's his wife who is going off to Miami with her friends and the like, it does happen. But most of the focus will indeed be on the men. And I will say, 
just a little bit more information on the surrendered wife that we had. It was very nice to have Laura Doyle join on this show. It was a very nice conversation to have with her. I just do want to say that I met somebody in Shul not too long ago. He's a Rav from New York, New Jersey, New York, kind of the same thing to me. Sorry, everyone in the tri-state area. And uh, he said, yeah, I listened to that show on the surrendered wife, and it's so crushed, it's against the Torah. The Hashkafa is just so wrong. So I do want to say that uh, if anyone is considering that uh, reading the books, which we will talk about today, or taking one of those coaching courses, speak with your Rav in advance. I think that is very, very important. So speak with your Rav in advance and discuss the issues of Rav that is familiar with those Hashkafas. That is a, a very important thing to do. So again, it was very nice speaking with uh, Mrs. Doyle and I do want to say a, a number of important points. These are caveats to or my personal opinion on, on uh, this concept of the surrendered wife. I, I do want to say that changing your Midos, especially very bad Midos, is difficult. If possible, at all, and it's possible in certain circumstances, there has to be a real desire it takes, really, to make a change. It could take decades of tremendous effort. And and it's important to know that this book is not a hashkafa book for a from Jew. It's not a proper hashkafa to say that the wife should surrender to the husband. We're talking on a hashkafa level right now. If there's a need to have a tikkun amidos, that is a different discussion. If there is a wife that feels that she is somewhat abusive or or overreaching, demeaning to her husband, that is the target audience for this book. I am hoping that that is not a very large target audience for Orthodox women, but the book is, by its uh, nature, by its definition, and this is what Mrs. Doyle says, it is really, if you read the book, it's clear that it is targeting women, and this is her word, that are shrewd. What is a shrew? That is a woman. I'm looking in the Merriam-Webster dictionary that is defined as a woman of violent temper. Actually, that's dictionary.com. A woman of violent temper and speech. Merriam-Webster dictionary defines a shrew as an ill-tempered, scolding woman. So that is the target market, and it is improper hashkafically not sound to read this as a hashkafa book for Shalom Bayes, that a woman should surrender. That is not the proper approach. But it could be. It could be that for a tikkun hamidos, on a temporary basis, maybe then it would be acceptable. It's possible. We'll touch on this issue. If uh, Just coming to mind is the Rambam. The Rambam that says that if you have uh, midos that are not ideal, if you're too far to the extreme on something, too far to the right, for example, if somebody is miserly, so go to the the other extreme, but the point here is to wind up in the middle, and that is uh, the difference between something that is a hashkafa, surrendering, that the wife should surrender to the husband. We will define this as well in the show. That is not a proper hashkafa, but if a woman is indeed a shrew, if she is an ill-tempered scolding woman, or a woman of violent temper and speech, and needs that tikkun amidus to go to the other extreme, and then come back into the middle, maybe that is something that would be proper. Obviously, why wouldn't you try more conventional means? There are wonderful from books that have been written. There are proper therapists. And indeed, I do want to mention that uh, Mrs. Doyle in her book herself talks about, at least on two occasions, I don't remember exactly how many times, but I do remember at least twice she talks about having consulted with her therapist on specific things. So um, I'd be surprised if somebody thinks that they can just read a book and have a miraculous Tikkun Amidus without 
having more assistance than that. I know there'll be people who email and say, I read the book and it was Metaki and Mamidos and now I'm a perfect wife. Uh, just, I, I do main, remain skeptical in general. I don't know if there were Yechidim that were successful, but in general, I do remain skeptical as to the effectiveness of a book in of itself, making such a dramatic change by someone who is a shrew and becoming a, a lovely wife. So just uh, a quick Dvar Torah, something that somewhat relates, it's on Parshas Balak, and on the Pasuk that talks about Bilam looking at Kalal Yisrael, he's ready to curse them yet again. It says Vayar third attempt to curse Kalal Yisrael, and it says that he looked out at Klal Yisrael as they were sojourning by their Shvatim, by the tribes. And Rashi says, interestingly, he says that each Shevet, each of the tribes was separate, Einan Muravim, that they were mixing together. And he also saw that the openings of the tents of the Klal Yisrael, they were not facing one to the other to give privacy one to the other. So they weren't peeking into each other's tents. So Rav Moshe Sternbach is Nistam Vadas. He breaks this into two. And he says, we have two statements here by Rashi. One is looking at the individuals that the tents weren't facing towards each other. And we also have on the Shvatim, on the more macro level as opposed to the micro level, that the Shvatim were separate and were not intermixing. So what's going on here? So he says the Pashtus of what is going on. First he talks about the individual, the micro level, and thereafter the macro level. And he says on the micro level that Klal Yisrael were not peeking into each other's tents and they were not seeing what are the assets and what are the items that each could afford and what they had and what they were enjoying. This concept of being like the Joneses or being like the Cohens and the Levies, to be like somebody else because they have it, I want it as well, that did not exist with Klal Yisrael back then. And that is the concept that here Bilam saw that their Pischeim were not Mechuvanim that they were not peeking into each other's others tensing what they had, because if you have it, I want to have it as well. If you're going on a vacation there, I want to go as well. If you have this fancy car, I want to have it as well. If you have a big house, I want it as well. If you have this type of clothing, I want it. That didn't exist with Klal Yisrael. Unfortunately, it ha- does exist nowadays, and uh, it's a big muster for us, and this is what's talked about by Ramosha Sternbach, but back, back then, that was the beautiful thing that Bilam saw Klal Yisrael, that they didn't have this kina, they didn't have this jealousy of one another. And on a second level, on the macro level, he said the Shvatim, that each was different, and they had different minhagim, and they had different leaders, and they had different poskim, and they had different drachim in life, and they all, despite the differences, they all got along. Be'ava, besimcha, they had achdus, and they had shalom. And he says... When Bilam looked at this, that on the micro level they're getting along and they don't have this jealousy, and on the macro level they're different, but they have achtus, Bilam says, I can't even come to curse them. That's why it says in the continuation of our Pasuk, that the Ruach Elohim was on, on Bilam, he couldn't even come to curse them because of that beauty of Kalalis. And I think that was a very relevant message that we have, that unfortunately we have to resurrect this Mida, we have to reinstall this Mida that Bilam son Klali so that brought on the beautiful Bracha Matovu Olecha Yaakov. These are the beautiful Olaolim. It doesn't matter that somebody else has something that I don't have and he can afford it and I can't. It's irrelevant. We should all live based on our own means and our own necessities and shouldn't be looking at each other going on this vacation or the that vacation. We should just do what's right for us individually without having to look at others. Before we go to our guests, we're simply going to go through our riddle of the week.
This week's riddle is going to be from Parsha's Balak. Towards the beginning of the Parsha, we have Balak who is concerned that his nation, Moab, would lose to Klal Yisrael militarily, and accordingly, he recruits Bilam to assist, and he tells Bilam as follows, I know, Yadati, ki asher tevarech mevorach v'asher taor you are, I know that who you give a bracha to will have blessing, and whoever you curse will be accursed. And accordingly, the question is as follows. We know here that there are two options. Klal Yisrael could be cursed. He's requesting, Balak is requesting Bilam to give a curse to Klal Yisrael, or what he could have done as well, because Bilam's brachas are affected as well, not only his curses, he could have said, give a bracha to Moab, my nation, that we will militarily be successful and overcome Klal Yisrael. And the question is as follows. With these two options, why was it that Balak chose requesting Bilam to curse Klal Yisrael rather than giving a bracha to Moab? If you want to leave a message by phone or dial in by phone to listen, in America our number is 732-806-8700, in England it's 44, like that's the country code, 33 in Eretz Yisrael, it's 02-372-0304. And now, let's go to our guests. Joining us now is Rabbi Yitzhak Breidowitz. Rabbi Breidowitz is a renowned posek. He is the rub of the Kehillat or Sameach and so much more. Rabbi Breidowitz, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, so good to be here, Ari, and nice to see you again. Thank you so much. So, Rabbi Breidowitz, let me set the table. I'm going to be a little bit longer than usual because I think it's important to give us context as to our conversation today. So, over the past, I don't know, year or two years, I've done a couple of shows on different aspects of Shalom Bayis. Uh, one was about should a woman surrender to the husband's desires? And we had one about the husband. Should he surrender to the wife's desires? And also had a couple shows on lavish lifestyles of Balabatim and various behaviors in that regard. And I did indeed think that that I was done with those topics and that they were behind us because there's so many wonderful topics to do. But I have a, had a conversation with a good friend who was actually a Rav leading a young professional's minion for a number of years, over a decade. And he said that with all of these shows that I had, admit, I had omitted the most critical issue is how does the wife deal with the husband that is involved in various lavish lifestyle behaviors. And uh, he said that's the most important issue, critical issue that he dealt with when he had the, the shul that he was uh, dealing with these issues with the husbands, the wives, and the wives were the biggest issue coming and saying, how do I deal with my husband? So indeed, that's what we're going to cover. I want to bifurcate the discussion into two. One will be hashkafit issues, more on a conceptual level. And then I would like to get back to a show that uh, we did a, a a while back, The Surrendered Wife by Laurel Do- Laura Doyle, and discussed some halachic issues of having read through the book and uh, some some possible concerns and that I wanted to get your opinion on. So uh, why don't we dive right in on the hashkafic issues? A very broad question is, if there is there a hashkafic 
approach that the Torah has to Shalom Bayis, for example, who makes the decisions, how to act on the life. For example, if that wife would come to you or the husband would come to you, or they would both come to you and say, uh, we're having an issue. Is there a chazal? Is there a postuk in Tanakh? Is there a hashkafa satora that you start with when dealing with Shalom Bayis issues? Yeah, you know, this is a very, very difficult uh, question. I think that anyone that's married has to navigate this, has to figure it out. And there are different Makoros that one can look at. One could, but again, you pull things out of context and they can prove all sorts of things. Uh, the Torah, for example, says, The man shall rule over you, speaking to Chava, which implies that the man is the boss. Uh, we have uh, other statements uh, that Isha Kishera, Osa Ritzon Bala, that a truly kosher wife, a good wife, does the will of her husband. Uh, but then we have a passage of the Rambam that I think is very, very significant here. And the Rambam basically says a husband must be regarded as a king by his wife. But the Rambam says, by the same token, the husband must look at his wife as a malka. Which means, I think if you look at genuinely good and solid homes, you will always see a tremendous mutual respect between spouses. The issue of asserting authority, authority is not something that you assert. It's something that you earn by virtue of your behavior. If a man behaves like a mensch with derecheres and with love and with care, with concern, with respect, then he's going to be respected. says, Who is the one who will be honored? The one who honors others. And certainly with a wife. A wife Again, maybe I'm overgeneralizing, but a wife wants to respect her husband. That's very, very important to her. She wants to be married to a man that she can look up to, that she can depend upon, that can be her guide in Inyanim of Torah, because the man, after all, does have the mitzvah of Talmud Torah more than the woman. But you know, you can't just come in and say, hey, I'm the boss, you listen to me. You haven't earned that respect. You haven't been the type of person that she should look up to. So all I would say is that, yeah, I'm entitled to be a melech when I treat my wife with the cover that she is a queen. And in fact, it's so interesting. Maybe it's a little bit of a homiletical touch. But Isha Kishera, which literally means the kosher, upstanding wife does what her husband wants. But some translate it this way. She makes his ratsa. She defines what it is that he will want. Aisa Ritsain Baila. In some ways, she kind of sets the tone as the Akeris Abayas, the cornerstone of the house, which kind of determines the ultimate direction. It's like Osa is she creates. She creates that ratsa. So in some ways, you know, when people come to me, and I get shyless sometimes, you know, we have a disagreement, who's the boss? But, you know, who's the boss? If you have to ask those types of questions already, even though Halakha obviously has to deal with them, there's already something a little bit wrong. Uh, because it's not who's the boss. I, I listen to my wife. I take in her wisdom. And hopefully she'll listen to me as well. We work out something based on our different approaches. And we come to an MS in that way. We are one person. We are Chadguf. Right? Basically, Adam and Chava, according to at least one opinion in the Gemara, were originally one. They were then separated, brought together again. That's the source of our common expression, my better half, my other half. The Zohar talks about Plad Grupa. So as a result, we make the decisions kind of together. Uh, and, and in that way, you know, there's going to be mutual respect. There's going to be mutual Shalom bias. So at least in the Hashkafa portion of things, I, I would prefer not to address about who is the 
decider. I think the notion has to be it's a mutual sharing in which we come to some, some conclusions. Mutual process, mutual relationship, and uh, mutual experiences, uh, experiencing life together. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. So if, if we have that wife that comes to you, Rabbi Breidowitz, and says, Rabbi Breidowitz, and this is the phrase, I've had it. I've had enough. My husband is prancing around with his friends. He's drinking, he's smoking, he's going off to foreign places, vacationing with the boys. How do we approach an issue like that? Well, again, uh, tragically, uh, this is becoming more and more common. Uh, Divorce, uh, not just in the Jewish community, but specifically in the Orthodox Jewish community, has growing exponential. Many people say when they were children, they never even heard of couples getting divorced. And now it's a relative commonplace. And sometimes it happens just a few months after marriage. People are already saying they don't know uh, that they could live together and and the like. Uh, And we can maybe we'll talk later about what might be the reasons for that, how, what steps could be taken to improve marriages. But first of all, just as a Rav, just as a therapist, uh, the first thing you have to have is empathy for the person. You have to listen. You don't dismiss a person's pain. A person is expressing pain, listen to what they're saying. And in terms of the laws of Lashon Hara, this will be Lashon Hara Letayelas, that you're trying to help them deal with the situation. But, you know, you can't fix it unilaterally necessarily. You can't fix it by just talking to the wife. I mean, if she's describing a situation of a husband that is simply cavorting with his friends and uh, getting drunk at kiddish clubs and squandering money and not showing home or coming home at three in the afternoon on Shabbos being drunk, which unfortunately there are cases in which that really happens, then obviously, you know, you got to talk to the husband. In other words, I'm not simply going to say, oh, get divorced. Now, Yes, sometimes the answer is to get divorced. It's not a good answer. It's like an amputation. But the same way you have to amputate, there are going to be times. The Torah, Lahavdil, is not like the Catholic Church, right? This recognizes a concept of garrison, but obviously it's a last resort and not a first resort. And that which can be fixed must be fixed. And only that which cannot be fixed, we have to go to plan B. So uh, obviously, uh, we have to try to work with the husband, get get him and them into appropriate therapy. Uh, now, the husband must understand that uh, a hus- Jewish husband has responsibilities to his wife and to his children. And uh, the whole institution of marriage is designed to get us away from egotistical self-gratification. Like the whole concept, lo tov the Torah says, it's not good for man to be alone because when man is alone, he's only focused on himself and it is not good for a person to be focused on himself. I have to focus on the needs of another person. I mean, I'll give you an example here. Somebody once forwarded me a, a survey that was administered to some yeshiva high school students in New York, like, uh, what do you expect uh, from a marriage? Like, uh, so, you know, different people said, well, that she'll have dinner for me every night, that she'll wash my clothes, uh, that she'll make my bed. In other words, all of it was about I can have the same type of life I have as a single person. And in addition, I have somebody to cook and clean and clean my shoes and everything else. I mean, what type of idea of marriage is that? Marriage is simply to have a maid. First of all, even if you have a maid, you can treat a maid with their parents, even even that situation. But, you know, a wife is much more. This is an Azer Kinecto. So when kids are being raised with the idea that their wives are simply to be their servants so they could enjoy life and have someone take care of all the other messy details. By definition, they're entering it with selfishness, with egotism, 
And that's a recipe for failure. That's a recipe for disaster. Uh, a woman is going to be miserable. When a woman is miserable, she will not give what she's capable of giving as well. So you got to start pretty early uh, in the Chinuch, way, way before somebody's even thinking about getting married, to understand that these are commitments. You got to grow up. Uh, you have to learn to care about another person. You have to learn empathy. You have to learn to be no say be all. And then I think our marriages would be on a much stronger foundation. It's right. not about what I get. It's about what I can give. And the beauty of it is, as you become a giver, you'll also get much more as well. Because right. it is the nature of marriage, and particularly on the part of a woman, when she feels appreciated, when she feels validated, when she feels respected, and most importantly, when she feels loved, she will give back. Again, I, I realize I'm generalizing, but my experience generally, she will give back many, many more times. Mm-hmm. So Rabbi with you're mentioning going to the Rav, which is, is an important thing, therapy, professional help. There are also Shalom Bayis books, some very good ones. We have some authors coming on to the show today to talk about uh, some of these issues. How about use of a non-Jewish book for Shalom Bayis? For example, accessing non-Torah sources for self-help that those hashkafas may or may not jive with Torah values. Is that is that a place to turn initially before Rav therapy, et cetera, or even as a Bidyevid, is that appropriate? You know, that's a a very difficult question because in point of fact, there is a lot of good stuff out there, even in the non-Jewish world. And this is Nikhlali, even Chochmah Bagayim Tamin, that talk about building relationships, communication strategies, sharing. So I'm not going to say some type of cherem that all non-Jewish or non-Torah sources are going to be puzzled. I've mentioned before that the great Rav Shlomo Gol was a funnel of Racham, a great uh, uh, Bali Musser of the last generation. When he was a young man, he was in Switzerland during World War II. He apprenticed, apprenticed himself, at least for a few months, to Jean Piaget, who was a non-Jewish uh, psychologist, considered to be the greatest child psychologist in the world, who specialized in how children develop morality. And Revolva, as a Balmusser, wanted to understand the process of how children develop Midos Tobos. And he considered that to be part of his Abaydas HaMusser to Chachma Begayim Tamin. So 100%, there's some very, very excellent books out there. But the problem is the same problem that Rabbi Meir faced when he learned Torah from Acher, the Apikoras Alicia Ben Aboya, that Rabbi Meir continued to learn Torah, and people asked him, how can you learn Torah from an Apikoras? And Rabbi Meir's answer is, Acher is like a rimon, a pomegranate. I throw away the inedible peel, and I take the edible seed. Rabbi Meir said, I throw away the bad, and I take the good. Theoretically, that would be my approach to all of these books. The problem is most of us are not Rabbi Mayer, that none of us are Rabbi Mayer. So the problem is there's an Erbuvia, a mix of Tovara in all of these books. There's a lot of stuff that is good and a lot of stuff that is valid. I'm not going to be Mavatalist. But on the other hand, once you're going outside of Torah guidance, there is always the risk, there's always the sakana that there might be poisonous negativity that are going to infuse uh, your mahalach. So the ideal situation would be that the Rav or their spiritual madrich would himself have a familiarity, or herself for that matter, would have a familiarity with some of this literature and would be able to suggest what would be appropriate in it and what would not be appropriate in it. Meaning for people to kind of do it on their own, again, I, I don't mean to disparage 
their own ability to do so. But I'm just pointing out that, that in many cases, there may be a risk of a difficulty of being mavchin, being kodesh, l'chol, actually it's not just kodesh l'chol, but kodesh l'chol, the opposite of kodesh. Trait. Trait, right. So there's going to be problems. problems. Right. But yeah, but again, I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely uh, willing to be modet that there's a lot of good stuff that can be garnered from the uh, non-Torah sources. Right. So why don't we put aside the hashkafic issues? And I want to delve into the halachic issues with the book written by Laura Doyle uh, called The Surrendered Wife. I did read the book. And uh, I'm certainly not Rebbe Mayer far from it. There were a few issues that did pop out at me. And I did want to run them by you to see if there are halachic problems with them or not. Somebody's going to use the book. They should certainly be on notice where there are problematic areas. So these are the things that popped out in me, but I am not a post so that's why I'm going to go through. I will quote from the book. These are not taken out of context. These are directly from the book, and I will be representing them accurately. So the, the first issue deals with Lashon Hara, and, and this is on a high level. I'll ask a question, but I'll, then I'll bring out what does the book actually say on this point. And the question is, when, when a woman feels that she needs to discuss various issues with someone, there's a husband, but maybe he's the problem here. There's a therapist, there's a rabbi, and there are also a possibility of the wife's own friends. And, and I'll quote from page 122 of the book, confidants are critical. And I quote, we do need support. And that's why I encourage you to tell other women about your surrendering process. The surrendering process is when the women with a, a woman who, who is uh, having these various challenges with husband and, and, and uh, Laura Doyle will actually be on this show. And as we'll be talking with her towards the end of the show, it's, it's fundamentally a woman who she calls a wench. That is a challenging, difficult wife. She called herself the wench. And that's the woman who has to have a tikkun amido. So, uh, she was an overbearing uh, wife, and uh, she needed to get out of that mode, so she surrendered to the decisions for the most part of the husband. So that's called the surrendering process. So she's talking about you should schmooze with your friends. That doesn't mean you can bash your husband endlessly, but you do have my permission to let off steam, as long as in the end you remind yourself that you married a guy you respect. Yeah, one more point. She does have this concept, page 274 of surrendered circles. This is a group of women that get together and discuss their marriage all in detail. So you're going to a Rav, we have a Heter Toelis, you're going to a therapist, you have a Heter Toelis. How about speaking with your uh, three closest friends or your surrendered circle, your group of women that you get together and discuss your progress and your challenges in your marriage? Yeah, uh, again, you know, uh, like many, many things, uh, there's a lot that I'm hearing from uh, Laura Doyle's book, that resonates with me that I do believe is Al-Pidas Torah. But on the other hand, there may be some things that are a little too far off uh, that need to be corrected. First of all, in terms of the strong points, the notion that when there's marital conflict, I look into myself to see what I can do to make it better, I think is a general yisod in Tikkun Amidos. And of course, the woman must do it and the man must do it. But we kind of look into ourselves as to what, what can I improve? And that's a wonderful thing, actually. Rabbi Yosalantra used to say that I thought I could change the world, etc. As I got older, I realized I changed myself and good things happened. So that core idea is actually something that I think is very good. The notion of being mavater, of giving up on things, not always pushing things to the limit, I think is also very good. Now, again, these are not uniquely obligations on the woman. These are things that both sides should do. So the notion of vatranos and the notion of improving yourself, I think is very, very, very excellent. The need, 
to be able to blow off steam and discuss is a very legitimate need. The Pasuk in Mishle says, Daiga Belevish, Yeshchena, and Chazal have a drasha. When a person has Daiga, Yasichena, you should be able to converse. The problem and, is... And I think the Gersa is Yasichena La'acher or La'acherim? La'acherim. Yasichena La'acherim. So that could be a, a, the group, the, 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 the yeah, surrendered right. circle. So, right, right. So, so all of these different ideas that she's bringing forth do have a certain resonance. And I think they do have something that can be incorporated in a Torah life. Uh, the issue, of course, is Lashon Hara. The issue is the Torah prohibits speaking derogatorily about other people, called Homer, your husband or your wife, uh, even if it's true. Lashon Hara is when it's true. So here we do have a famous passage in the Chafetz Chaim. It's a footnote, and it's interesting. The Chafetz Chaim uh, does not state it as a Vadai Halacha. He says, Epshar, and yet... All of the Pais can take it as a halacha psukah, even though the Chavitz Chaim actually didn't say it. And that is, the Chavitz Chaim talks about the idea that if a person has pent-up anxiety, pent-up anger, and by discussing it, this could help him overcome the anger and move towards constructive resolution, uh, there is no iser, he says, Epsher, there is no iser to speak Lashon Hara, and there's no iser to be Makabal Lashon Hara, if you can help a person in the process. So this is ultimately the heter of the therapist, uh, this is the heter of uh, teachers, you know, sp- uh, parents and teachers talking about their children and, and the like, because this is a tayelis. Lashnara is not, the laws of Lashnara are not designed to prevent people from communicating about their problems so they can come to a resolution. So once again, therefore, on some level, the notion of the surrender circle, if that was the term that, that you use, can make sense. But... I think there is a particular problem when you go beyond the therapist or the rab and you simply involve your actual friends because your friends or married women's friends are presumably going to be married women who have husbands. They typically will live in the same community. So after a while, you have a situation where like I walk into a shul and like everybody knows everything about you know what I did, etc. That could create a lot of humiliation, a lot of pain a lot of hurt, which means it goes beyond the technical laws of Lashon Hara. I mean, if we were just focusing on, is it Lashon Hara for a woman to talk about the problems that she's having with her husband? My answer would be, maybe it's not technically Lashon Hara. If it helps her deal with her pain, and it's done in a constructive way, instead of bashing, and to yourself says it shouldn't just be bashing, but help a person, that would be Nichlal in Lashon Hara with the Yeles, or the Chavitz Chaim's Lashon of the Shakech, I think was the Lashen. But as I say, there's a particular problem within a relatively small community to simply reveal it to people who know you and know him, uh, because I think that results in other resources besides Lashen Hara, Malvin Pnei Chavero, a person is embarrassed, and the like. So I appreciate the dilemma, because obviously your friends are the people, speaking from a woman's perspective, her friends are the people she'd most want to share it. Uh, I'm just a little worried about uh, this expanding circle. Like, How large is this circle going to be? And how constructive will it be? Because one could imagine it could easily slide into husband bashing, male bashing, and the like. So it would depend on the facts of a situation. I could see after a situation where a woman has one, one closest friend who advises her, perhaps in that context, uh, this information to be shared discreetly. I'm a little reluctant to have kind of a group setting 
where people talk about what's going on in their in their family. Right? I think it's too close to a humiliation and a busha, which is something that's very much also. Uh, and and the disclosure should be limited as much as possible. Meaning, yeah, one, disclosing to one is better than disclosing to two or ten. That's right. If the job could be done by talking to one, then don't talk to two. And if two would be enough, don't talk to ten. So, if there's any criticism of her particular hatsa, is that you know she seems to be envisioning let's have a whole you know the whole town get together and wives will exchange uh, all of the tightness they have on their on their husbands. That's going to be yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the the substance of the conversation. So page 231 talks is about uh, you should tell your friend how sad you feel that your husband hasn't approached you for intimacy for a few weeks. It really gets into details on this page and, and page 215 about really going into details. If we're talking toelis, does that mean that everything is hutra or, or do we have to walk lightly when we're talking about some very personal details? You know, it's, it's very, very tough. But, but ultimately, I think anything that is litoelis is litoelis. Meaning to say, if by discussing this, the woman could get strategies, ideas, how to improve things and make things better and bring shalom bias, even though it's not a certainty, of course, then I think it's okay to talk about it. I would just suggest, and again, I think that Laura Doyle even brings this in, that it be coupled with statements that she did marry a man she respects. You know, she should, shouldn't be kulo genai. There should be the shvach there. And I think even the term sadness is a good way of expressing it. It's not condemnation. It's not saying, oh, my husband is a bum. It's saying, I'm very sad that we've reached a place where we have these problems. What do you think I can do to try to make things better? Right. And I know that's a painful conversation, but provided you limit it in terms of how far you spread it, I, I do think that would be Nikhal and Moshe Harulatoelis, depending on the friends that the woman has. Uh, you know, as they say, if there are friends who just pour gasoline on the fire, then Badafka, that would be Moshe Harul. Right, right, but the, the, the substance of this conversation can, could very well push us into going to a therapist who has a specialty in those areas and not going to a friend. That might be so. That might be so. A person has to know. And again, this is not a, an exact science of, you know, what type of things can be handled in informal mechanisms and what need pr- the professional you know, mental health system or going to a RAV and the like. So there are different ways of dealing with things. And uh, you know, a person does have to make those judgments. They are not fail-safe judgments. Right, right. Okay, the, the third issue, I, I don't think we should go into too much depth on because uh, we have a very broad listener base of various ages, but on page 215, she talks about if you're not available to be there for, for your husband and he has needs, uh, let him deal with himself. He may use pornography. That's his problem. H- how do we address if, if we're talking about if this is proper or not, for example, to give somebody this book and it has it, it has language in there about you know, your husband will be able to handle himself. Um, I, I guess I'm jumping a little forward to, to question the general question of if we're if we're having concerns about Lushan Hara and and the like, and these things are uh, espoused in the book, is it permitted to give somebody a book when it has uh, advice along those lines? Well, you know, it, it actually depends. Uh, you can give a share in, in giving shot in this book. I mean, it really depends on how you read those particular passages. Uh, if uh, the book is saying, oh, it's okay to have pornography, it's okay uh, to have affairs, 
then obviously that's connected to Torah. Uh, there's no way. Uh, these are very, very severe averos. Uh, even pornography, which some people call a victimless crime, a person who's just sitting in front of a computer screen, is tremendously, tremendously sinful, but not only sinful, but harmful to a relationship. It's harmful to a marriage itself. So in the sense of telling a woman to uh, tolerate it, accept it, and encourage it, uh, there's no way uh, that could be uh, accepted within a Torah life. On the other hand, if the issue is, should a woman push on this? Meaning, uh, you got to choose your battles in life. Meaning to say, sometimes pornography is a cause of discord. And sometimes it is a symptom resulting from discord, meaning to say that if the marriage has structural problems, husbands might turn to other things, just as wives might turn to other things. So in such a situation, even as a rav or a therapist, we might advise the woman or the man not to focus on this particular issue at this particular time. Let's focus on the issues we can work on. So of course, you don't say, oh, that's fine. Let him do what he wants. But there may be a strategic decision not to focus on certain issues at any given one time. And in, in, in the Tikkun Amidos generally, you know, you've got to choose what is the issue to focus on at this point. So in that sense, there is, there is a mixas emes even in that statement, albeit the way it's written is, is very extreme and not acceptable. As yeah, I, I, I toned it down. <laughs> Okay, okay. Significantly. That's kind of the issue. Again, I, I find myself, at least in the passage you read, I've not read the whole book, in agreement in a very general way with the Mahalach that she's advocating, but the specifics are not the the Torah, and, and that would be a prime example of the earlier point we made, that this has to be filtered through a Das Torah and through a uh, sensitive Hashkafa and Halacha in terms of how a Jew takes all of these things and applies them in their daily life. Very good. Well, Rabbi Breidowitz, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Uh, a lot of important concepts, thoughts, and uh, a lot definitely to think about here. Okay, thank you very much, Ravari. Good to see you. Much Joining us now is Rabbi David Cohen. Rabbi Cohen served as a communal rub for many, many years. He's an author. He is also active in family therapy, coaching, helping, assisting families and spouses. And in fact, his newest book that's come out, the prior book was called We're Almost There, a fantastic book. And the new book is right on point for what we're discussing today. It's put out by Mosaic Press and called Together Again, Reimagining the relationships that anchor our lives. Rabbi Cohen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Ravari, for, for having me. It's so great to be here together with you. We learned in Yeshiva many years ago, and uh, it's so great so many years later to see all the amazing things you're doing for the club. Thank you. So Rabbi Cohen, th- this is a very appropriate topic for you because you've served as a Rav. You are a couples and family therapist with an active uh, practice. And, and like, question, my fundamental question today is how do you advise a wife? And it could be a husband as well, but we're focusing on a wife today and how she should handle when a sensitive issue comes up, a difficult issue comes up vis-a-vis the behavior of her husband. It could be that she doesn't respect him because of it and disagrees with the behavior that he's involved in. How should she go about handling that? 
Ravari, it's a very important question. I think first and foremost, we have to view it through the through the prism, through the lens of the broader relationship. It's very hard just kind of to comment, you know, one shoe fits all in terms of how husband or wife, you know, is going to respond to behavior of their spouse that maybe they're not comfortable with. A lot is very much contextualized by the by the nature of the relationship. You know, many times when when people reach out to me, wives in particular reach out to me about a problematic behavior of their husband, it's often a function of a fractured or challenging marital relationship or lack of communication or things have gone awry for a very long time. And then they're kind of reaching out to you in the, in the moment of crisis. It's very hard to kind of unpack kind of layers and, and years of, of, of complication or, or gaps that, that exist in that relationship. So just as a caveat, just to begin responding to that question, it's very important. And to understand that in general, you know, the stronger the lines of communication are and the foundations of marriage are built through Shana Rishona and beyond. So then clearly when a challenging moment or moments arise over time, it's a lot easier to deal with those difficulties or maybe those anomalies, or maybe even when when they become a pattern, it becomes a lot easier when the lines of communication have already been solidified and the trust is there and that they do respect each other and do want to try to please each other. So you know, that's, that's just important to, to mention that off the bat. Right. So if, if that's like the, the parallel. They say if, if you have a lot of deposits in the bank over time, then it's easier to make a withdrawal. 100%. 100%. We always have to be investing in our relationships. We always have to ensure that we're working on our communication because communication is not always meaning communicating about things that are easy to communicate about or that we're happy about. Sometimes it, even in the best marriages, there are moments of challenge. There are moments of disagreement and one has to have the tools and one has to have the, the backdrop to, to deal with that. So again, we may be talking on two different tracks of when that exists or when that doesn't exist, but, but be that as it may, uh, whatever the situation may be. So you know, obviously, it's never it's never comfortable to call out some another person. is of course a mitzvah in the Torah. It's never easy to be able to tell a friend that you think maybe they're lozu haderech or not doing something the right way. And certainly with a spouse, it's 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 rife with with potential hurt feelings, and and you can't just like turn away from that person and not have to see them for a few weeks. You know, it's not it's not so practical. So a lot of sensitivity uh, in both directions has to go into how we raise with our spouse a troubling behavior, a concern. I think people have to be transparent. They have to be open. They have to be willing to point out what the behavior is. They have to be able to share what the concern is, what they're imagining the potential of this behavior is, and but to be straightforward and to share it and not to do it in an accusatory way, but to always explain kind of how, how the behavior is impacting, how, how your behavior is making me feel is a very important way. Not to say that you're bad or that, you know, not to condemn the person, but to generally share from a place of love. I think many of us feel when people do, if we're fortunate enough to get constructive feedback, we feel that it's coming from a place of concern, the place of love, and it's motivated and inspired by that person hoping that we're going to be better for the better of the cloud, for the better of the family. It's often much better received than if there's some sort of ulterior motive or agenda or the spouse can just return. Oh, that's just your agenda or that's just your, you're always you know, bothering me about that particular thing. And that goes to a second point, which is that the spouse has to be very careful. Maybe this may be more relevant in one direction than the other in terms of not nagging. You know, oftentimes we can fall into uh, the habit of kind of perpetually nagging, which can be a turnoff because ultimately, you know, it's it's how we communicate the messages is essential. It's not always the it's not just the content of the message, it's also the tone, it's how it's communicated. And a lot of thought and foresight has to go into 
how we raise these issues, whatever the challenges may be, but it has to be done in a way where it's quiet, where it's thoughtful, where the environment is, is one where it's possible for it to be received in the best possible manner. Right? We want to think hard before how we want to approach it. So let me give you some specifics. A wife needs to handle certain behaviors that she views as harmful. And uh, we've had a number of shows in the past on husband's activities, but it could be a wife. I hear as well that wives do get involved in various activities, but we'll focus for today more on, it could work both ways. But we'll focus on the on the wife and how she deals with the husband. We've talked about on various shows over the past year of smoking. Maybe that's unfortunately more common of an issue, but uh, more deleterious to one's health. It could be heavy alcohol drinking and marijuana, heavier drugs, gambling, gambling addictions. How would she broach that conversation? Would she do it herself or would maybe she recruit others to assist in, in the efforts here? So it's an excellent question. I'll take a step back just for a moment. I'll just share anecdotally. I was davening about a year ago. I stepped away from my rabbinical position. I'm kind of more of a rabbi at large now in the five towns area, which is a very big area. So I was davening in one of the shuls that I, I frequent on occasion. And that shul doesn't have a rav yet. And they're looking for a rav. And one Shabbos, there was a guest Balabas who got up to speak in the shul. And he very formally addressed to the kahila. This is a young kahila, guys who are in their late 20s, guys who are in their early 30s, really just beginning their careers, having some financial success. Many of them, B'nai Torah, learned in, in classical yeshivas. And he was really speaking to their heart. He was sharing his own experiences in terms of maybe where he, he kind of misstepped in his youth. And now he's very much devoted to Talmud Torah. And he was, it was very beautiful to see that he was articulating to a young chevra that it's so important that, you know, so at some level, in response to your question, it's a little bit of a communal issue in the sense that we live in times where, although I Obviously, it's beginning to shift a little bit with inflation and, and the times are changing in terms of the economy. But for many years, there has really been uh, tremendous success and wealth in Klyosol like has really never been seen before. And that, of course, brings with it many challenges. And I'm sure it's been spoken about in this program and in others. So it's important for Rabbanim, for lay leaders as well, to talk about kind of how to use resources properly, how to use the opportunities properly. And I, I found it to be, it was so impactful. Oftentimes, when other Balabatim are modeling and speaking about either their own mistakes steps or speaking about the beauty of a Torah lifestyle and the meaning and the fulfillment and the depth that they've experienced from people who've had a lot of success and have kind of given up on that or put that aside for more eternal value. So I think that makes a, a tremendous impact and, and Roshan. But in terms of uh, you know wife speaking to her husband, so I think, again, a wife has to be very careful. It's a very delicate balance in the sense that you have to try by yourself, right? That's that's first, you know, husband, wife, it's a very intimate relationship. We don't necessarily want to start bringing in uh, relatives and friends and other people. I think a second step, if a wife sees that her interactions with her husband are not being effective, certainly a therapist, which is a, a confidential medium where you can go together with your spouse, where you're talking to an objective party, where there's a certain safety net there, where the husband doesn't have to be embarrassed or concerned that it could get out or people could be talking about it or can create more of a, a riff or friction between the spouse. I think that's a second avenue. Sometimes, depending on the Rav, depending on the situation, depending on the reverence that the Rav is held in, depending on how much influence he may have on the husband. So that may be an address, but but I, I give a caveat having served as a Rav for many, many years. That's also, it's fraught with danger in the sense that the wife has to be rec- has to be cognizant of the reality that the Rav often interacts with her husband quite frequently, and they may learn together and they may dive in together. And although the Rav is an authority figure and is, is, is supposed to have a positive ashma, but some Sometimes you have to be very careful if you're going to tell the rub too much negative information about your spouse 
that, you know, that he maybe doesn't know otherwise. So a rub is a human being too. And it may affect the way the rub looks at your husband. And, and then when, you're, when your husband finds out that you told the rub, that could impact their relationship. And then maybe Yatsasar Bevseda in a sense that the rub may lose his ability to be a positive influence and force in your husband's life going forward. So I'm not saying no, I'm just saying that a lot of thought has to also go into, you know, I had, I had a, a woman call me recently who's struggling with, with her husband in, in, in many, many uh, negative ways. And she was expressing the frustration that, you know, nobody can speak to him, not, not friends, not, not Rabbanim. Like it sounds like she's tried every single avenue, but, you know, sometimes there are people that are just, you know, that cannot be, that cannot hear, you know, they just cannot hear. Sometimes a Chavar Tov can be a, a, a mashbia, and maybe we'll talk a little bit about the Sviva and the Chevra and the influence that that, uh, that that, you know, that that the role that that plays. So sometimes, again, the wife has to try to be aware of who the Chevra is, what the, and how much is it, is it her husband? How much is it the people that he's hanging around with? So on and so forth. So again, a lot has to be unpacked, but uh, again, it's the same so that the wife has to be delicate, has to be careful and has to really think it through. And again, it's, it's almost unfair. Like she's dealing with all these concerns and anxieties from his behavior. And on top of it, now you're telling me you have to be, she has to be super careful. But, but I think, yes, I think she does have to be, she does have to use a lot of forethought Right in terms of uh, how she's going to communicate these messages in the way that they'll that they'll be heard and listened to. Now, on on that chevra point, uh, effectively, this is a little bit of a dicey issue because if it's the chevra, and typically there is the chevra going to kiddushes and vacations and the like together, and she's requesting him to not participate in those activities, isn't she effectively telling him to discontinue those relationships or at least the relationships in that vein participating in those activities? It could be that that that's the extent of that relationship. It's all based on involvement in those activities. And she would be telling him to cease those friendships, which is quite a significant request. Right. And he could boobarag back and say, I don't want you hanging out with, uh, you know, Mrs. X and Mrs. Y and Mrs. Z and going shopping together and so on and so forth. So yes, a hundred percent. I think you have to view it from, I have the good fortune of living in a, a relatively young neighborhood where there are a lot of young families moving in. There are a multiplicity of, of options and Rabbanim and shuls. And it's, you know, I, I think the question is a priori sometimes, you know, how do we view it in terms of when you already mixed in with a chevra that maybe is a negative influence versus kind of you're coming in fresh and what chevra are you choosing? I had a story once where a very hush of Balbas, so he once shared with me that, that, you know, he was more comfortable with a certain chevra, but his wife really wanted him to dive in with a different chevra. And she, and, and, and when I inquire why I didn't see him as, as frequently as I thought in a certain shul, he shared with me because his wife really wasn't comfortable with that chevra. So I think in the sense that as spouses, we can be mashpia, we can influence each other in a positive way. I think it's important that a wife should be aware of kind of like what the reputation is of different shuls in the neighborhood and the community, the type of people that frequent those places, where, where are you going to go, where your husband's going to be exposed to B'nai Aliyah, where he's going to be exposed to people that share your aspirations and your goal, where is the Rav kind Kind of maybe more of an influence versus less of an influence. So, so all that is relevant in terms of when you're starting fresh and scratch and you really can kind of choose a chevron. You're asking kind of more pointedly once you're already enmeshed in a wrong chevra or in a chevra that maybe is is not uh, you know is not living up to its expectations. So then then I think there are a number of options. One option is to kind of uh, to reach out to some of the women you know in that chevra. 
There's often the shay in many communities. And, and to say, look, you know, what do we want for ourselves? What do we want for our lives? Women have tremendous biniyaseira. They have tremendous ability to, to influence and inculcate values in the home and to be much beyond their husbands, uh, frankly. And I think it's completely reasonable to, to tap into some, again, not to get into the nitty gritty of behaviors, but to kind of create an atmosphere that the women as a whole want more from their husbands. It's maybe it's done in tandem. It's not one particular woman. It's not, so you okay, so maybe, but maybe that's not going to work. I mean, at the end of the day, if the chever really is bringing your husband down and the women who are associated with that chever are not really sharing your values, there really isn't much of an option other than to speak gently and speak thoughtfully with your husband in terms of what you aspire to have for your home and your life. And maybe where, you know, maybe where there are better options, uh, there may be other ways to stay connected to that, to that chever and those friends uh, in, in, in limited uh, jolts and limited exposures, but to that, to be the Iker chever where you're hanging out all the time, but it's bringing you down. That's certainly something that's less than ideal. Right. Now, now let's throw in when there are children involved. And the wife is concerned that it could go both ways. The wife is concerned about the example of the husband. The husband is concerned about the example of the wife. She's on her phone, whatever the concern is. And, and obviously, this heightens it significantly. It's not just a spouse issue, which is a big issue, but it involves being an example of the children. And, and uh, it could have an impact on the children if a father is doing something or a mother's doing something. Children learn those activities as well. So does that change how we approach things or just that that makes it much more important to deal with the issues at hand? In my experience as a communal Rav, I've actually seen that the the specter of children coming down the road or children growing or developing or getting older only serves generally as a positive impetus for even Hever that like to have a good time to begin to to shape up because to sober up. No, I think it's true. I think and I've heard this articulated to me, even amongst clever that were big kiddish clubbers or wouldn't spend time in shul or were kind of didn't have covered harav. I, I kind of did hear this idea from many of them who were brought up in, in good environments and good homes. They appreciated that whatever it was, you know, people have their mishigas, they have their tkufas in life where they need to kind of the different stressors that kind of compel them to behave in certain ways, particularly maybe on weekends and shul and Shabbos. But I think people all, often want best, better for their children, right? We want our children to be more successful for us than us in, in, in many ways. Many parents aspire that their, that their children should be more successful in, in business or career-wise, and it's no different in Ruchnius, right? We want always want to see more for our kids than for ourselves. And people often pay crazy amounts of tuition to ensure the best chinuch for their kids. So I think kids, if anything, can really be used as a, as a wonderful tool uh, to prevail upon a spouse when other things aren't working in the sense that honey, sweetheart, Shoimala, uh, whatever, whatever, whoever the husband is, you know, look, we have our little Davidal. He's, he's, uh, he's, he's, he's almost five now. He's going, he's going to first grade. He's got his sitter. He got his chumish. It's going to be bar mitzvah in a few years. You know, we need to, you need to be a better model for him. You need to learn together more, so on and so forth. So I think that, that the, that the children entering the picture is certainly, uh, it, it's, it's an ase tov. It's also a surmeira in the sense that uh, it's frightening when, when children often, I once heard, I think, a neighbor of Simcha Wasserman, who I think was from LA, or I lived in LA, where, where you come from originally, right? This idea that children are like immigrants. I think where Simcha never had children, never, but, but he, he had, 
He had many Talmidim, and he said that children are like immigrants in the sense that immigrants come to a new locale and they imitate the behaviors of those around them. So children also tend to imitate the behaviors of what they see at home. If, if parents are, are, are smoking, I, I've seen, I mean, I, I've seen, I've seen things that are hard to believe. Like I, I once had a, a Purim Chagiga at, at my house in one of my communities. And, and like, there was like, I smelled, I smelled like pot, like in my house. And, and I ever was like going outside, like, like smoking up and coming in, like it's Purim, it's Lebedic and, and, and not commenting on it, but I'm saying it's these things are are very very pronounced. But but at the same time, like I, you know, I've seen the behavior of the way that adults who are under the influence of some of these substances interacting with other people's children in ways that are terribly inappropriate, using nivelpe, using foul language, anger, frustration. Certainly, when we we lose our you know, when we are uninhibited and we lose control of our senses, whether it be through alcohol or drugs. So the, the impact can be very, very deleterious, very negative, and something that, that, that a wife shouldn't be bashful about uh, raising with her husband. Again, one has to, I think one has to bifurcate and one has to be careful in the sense that I never encourage any of this uh, unhealthy behavior. But a wife also has to be sensitive to, uh, was this a one-off event? Was this kind of, uh, my husband got a little carried away? I, I once, this, this person passed away already. It was a very, very big, big tzaddik, a Talmud Chacham, wonderful person. I used to learn with him uh, every morning. One year on Purim, he was an older man in his 70s, and he was hanging with, uh, not, not on Purim, simple story. One year in simple story, he was hanging with the, with the younger Chavri, a little too much to drink. And his wife called me after simple story, yelling and screaming at me, Rabbi, how could it be? that my husband was drinking whatever and I used to joke around with him you know because like he's like he's like come on like it's almost a one type thing it was simplest Torah you know it's like this is a guy who's a he's a he's a learned figure his his kids are older like but it was but his wife couldn't even be solved with that so it's like which is beautiful but I'm saying like we have to be sensitive and aware of like is it a one-off thing is it is it a real concern you know even the most hush of a people sometimes uh you know in a moment can can exercise lack of judgment so I think it's important that you know, the wife determines what's a pattern of behavior, what's kind of a one-off thing. So it is important to always assess the, the the situation before we go, you know, before we overreact, but we also can't underreact when the situation is, is calls for it. While we still have you, I'm, I'm interested, although it's not our topic, but how about if you have two parents that are not on the same page with their parenting methods? For example, one is more strict and one is more allowing than the other. Or one has this belief and one has that belief. And, and it's not working. It's not working primarily for them, but it's also not working for the kids as well. They get different messages from one. And if uh, you get a no from one, you go to the no one that's going to give you the yes. Uh, how do you handle something like that. I once heard a beautiful word just on the you know the famous Chazal, the Pasik says in Bereshit of of Kenegdo, this idea that Hakadosh Baruch Hu created Chava as a as a match as a pair for Adam, and and the Gemara of course talks about how is it. Uh, how if you're an Azer, you're not Kinegdo, and Chazal of course give a drush on it. But but I've seen in Svarim this idea that it's well known that the, the Avos and the Imos are, you know, they, they, their Shiduchim really were an expression of, of, of different Midos, right? Avram was Chesed and Sarah was kind of more Midas Adin and Yitzchak is more Midas Adin and Rivka is Midas Chesed and Yaakov is a hybrid of Teferis, had, had Rachel and Leah. It's not a time to elaborate on, on these Yisodas right now, but, but the, the Azer Kinegdo sometimes can be actually the parents espousing different 
personas or good cop, bad cop. So it's not always kind of the the worst thing in the world. Uh, you know, Ramosha Weinberger, a Rebbe of mine, he, he often used to say that, you know, people say opposites attract, and he would joke that sometimes opposites get divorced. Like, so it's, it's, it's interesting in the sense that, you know, so sometimes, you know, opposites are, you know, could work amazingly well together and bring to the fore what the other one lacks. And sometimes obviously they can't negotiate uh, their differences. So your question really is, you know, I think when, when it's problematic, when the, when they're having a difficult time negotiating the differences in Ashkafa or the differences of, of perspectives in terms of how to negotiate one wife wants to send the kids to a more modern co-ed school and, and one pair of the couple and the other one wants to send to a more Haredish school and, and, and so on and so forth. So how are those, how are those differences negotiated? So, I mean, it's interesting because you could often have, you know, it's often the uh, lowest common denominator is Kovea or the highest common denominator is Kovea. It kind of really depends. Uh, you know, I, I once heard a beautiful, I think it's the name of Rabari Levine, if I'm not mistaken, that's out of Yerushalayim, that, that he, he once said that my wife and I, we never disagree. I handle all the Ruchnius in our marriage and she handles all the Gashmius. The only thing we fight about is what falls under the category of Ruchnius and what falls under the category of Gashmius. So, okay, that's a very, very high, you know, very high Hecher Madrega. But at the core, I'm coming back to the same point throughout the common thread of all my responses to your questions, Ravari, is that communication is key. Respect is key. The ability, oftentimes, I think when a couple gets married, I mean, it could be on the issue of, I remember just my own, my own life. So, you know, my wife and I met in Yerushalayim. We spent the first three years of married life in Yerushalayim. When we were dating, we talked about living there to swell, living in my aspirations to serve the Klal, where my kochos could better be used. And it was very, very clear to both of us that we didn't, we didn't necessarily, meaning, Bigadol, we shared the same vision, but we had very different ways maybe of actualizing or uh, kind of bringing to fruition what we shared. So that's very important, meaning that at the end of the day, you know, the technical questions can be negotiated. You know, we're going to do this school and we're going to supplement that way or vice versa. But the real question is like when when the couple, they're on the same page, Bigadol, then there are many there are kind of many ways to reach that same goal. Many different harbe drachem lamakom to kind of literally harbe drachem lamakom, right? And, and re- reinterpreting it, there are there are many different pathways to get to Hakadosh Baruch Hu. But if bigadol, they're really not on the same page. That that couple maybe should not have gotten married. Now, if that couple is already married and they have very very different viewpoints, so that often uh, I've seen in my experience as a rub as a therapist, that can lead to very very fractured relationships. And more often than not, I've seen those type of couples unfortunately get divorced. I mean, I've seen extremes where I, I've actually seen couples live happily. It sounds crazy. I've seen couples live happily for many years. I shouldn't say happily. But I've seen couples manage for many years where one is from and one is not. I mean, it's very hard to imagine. I've actually seen such a thing. But ultimately, in those situations I'm familiar with, at a certain point, the members of the couple went their own way because it just it's too definitional to our existence as a from Jew to manage uh, to, 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 manage, to manage that type of dichotomy or that type of split. It's also my wife reminds me all the time. It's kind of very very important that children see a unified front amongst the parents. So you know it it, it undermines the children's sense of esteem and sense of safety when they see their parents constantly at loggerheads or battling. And, and it's it's fine, I think, for parents, to, for kids to see that, to observe that, you know, that parents have different methodologies, or I think it could be very wholesome, you know, for, for kids to observe that one parent is is maybe more meticulous in observance in certain chumras or certain ways, and, and maybe another parent is more spiritual, and they, and they kind of are able to inculcate the best of what each has to offer. But at the core, whatever the issue is, again, I'm, I'm kind of bringing us 
kind of to the backdrop of, of, the, of the friction or the tension, but at the core of the tension, respect, listening, hearing what the other one has to say. I mean, I think that's so many times couples kind of speak over each other. They're, they're not really hearing what the other one is saying or how what the other one is saying can fit into their worldview or their vision or how we can even supplement or provide different support for the thing that the other spouse values. If it's one spouse feels more strongly that she wants her child to have uh, more exposure to, say, Zionism, or it could be culture or, or music or whatever it is. There, there are ways to supplement these things, not at the expense of the Iker Chinuch and Talmud Torah or, or, or vice versa. So I, I think we live in a world today where there are really there are really are many different ways to negotiate difference. But, you know, the success ultimately of relationships is, is, is very much gebait. It's very much built. And it's basis is very much how the how the different parties are able to respect differences and to hear differences. And, and, and one just one final thing I think is so crucial. I think many people in the early years of marriage, they're, they're, they're invested in trying to make their partner more like themselves. Like win over the part, the other person to your side, to your viewpoint. I think when marriages really reach the next level, the next madrega, it's when the two parties understand that this person is different than me, right? And, we're, and we, we need to, we, we, we want to, and we need to, and we aspire to, to, to create a oneness and a wholeness. But at the same time, it can be through recognizing the beauty of the other's viewpoint. And I've seen this so many times in the, in the better marriages, right? That people really... They get what over to their spouse's viewpoint. They begin to see the world through the lens of the way their spouse sees it. And that ultimately enriches their experience that enriches their connection to the other. And I think that's really what uh, we want to hope for in, in negotiating any type of friction or conflict, be it hashkafically being uh, what color the wallpaper should be, uh, so on and so forth. I guess the big takeaway is one word here. One word. Communication. 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 100%. 100%. Rabbi Cohen, I want to thank you so much for joining us. It's, it's so great to see you after so many years. Thank you so much, Ravari. Keep up the amazing work. Laman Klal Yisrael. Thank you. Joining us now is Dr. David Lieberman. Dr. Lieberman is a leader in the fields of human behavior and interpersonal relationships. He has written 11 books, including two New York Times bestsellers, which have been translated into 27 languages and have sold more than 3 million copies worldwide. Dr. Lieberman, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Ravari. Great to speak with you. Uh, Dr. Lieberman, we, we've had a number of shows on headlines about various behaviors that we're seeing in the Orthodox community, and it could be ranging from smoking, vaping, heavy alcohol use, marijuana, even cocaine, lavish lifestyles, dress by uh, the husbands. It could be uh, tight clothing, uh, bicycle clothing and the like. And, and I received a call from somebody, I won't say from where, I received a call from somebody in the United States saying you missed the most most important issue, and that is the shalom bias problems that these activities, actions, and it's not always the man that is guilty will admit that, but let's talk about when it is the husband that is guilty. And, and the shalom bias issues that has caused, for example, the wife not respecting the husband, not knowing how to deal with the husband in those issues. So what, what, what would be your ace if, if a wife comes to you and says her husband is involved in these type of crude activities, one or more negative activities, how should she go about dealing with it? Okay, right. So first, let me encourage anyone listening that they should speak with their Rav first uh, in terms because the Rav 
I hopefully knows both you know the husband and the wife, and we should really get proper hadracha from from the rav in terms of guidance. But in broad strokes, the the, the wife is not her husband's mishkiach, and it's important to understand that you know Dr. Rabbi Abraham Tversky Zetzal, you know he once said he said nobody ever stopped drinking by someone going over to them and saying, don't you see how you're ruining your family? You know the person's not magically going to say, oh I guess you're right, yeah, being an alcoholic isn't good for the wife and kids. I'll stop. That's not how. When, again, people move forward. It's something we spoke about in a, in a previous interview. So, uh, you know, it, it would it is necessary certainly for her husband to become aware that these behaviors are injurious. But she is not going to be the one to go after him. And because even though these problems do often create shalom bias issues, how the spouse deals with it can too often exacerbate the issues. So it would behoove, in this case, the wife to recognize she's not her husband's mishkiach. It doesn't mean that she can sit, has to sit on her hands and can't do something. It does mean that she's not going to be the one to go toe-to-toe with him. So getting mad, getting angry at him is going to predictably move him away and more into the self-destructive behaviors. It just does time and again. Anyone listening to this that's in the situation knows the trajectory is very clear. What she can express, what she can show, not overtly, but to make clear, is that she's sad. Sad, not mad. And it's a very important distinction. Sad is she's just not happy doesn't mean that she's that she's miserable, doesn't mean she's depressed, doesn't mean she's angry with him. Again, sad, not mad, that this is causing her pain. No self-respecting husband wants to cause his wife pain. So her being in pain over this is legitimate, it's authentic, it's honest. But she should not move into that territory of anger and overt disapproval, because ultimately that will just push him just far too often further into the behavior or habit. So I'm, I'm hearing like a two-pronged, uh, maybe not the last best word is attack, but a, a two-pronged approach vis-a-vis the husband, the wife sows her sadness, not madness, but sadness. And, and prong number two is to try to recruit a rav to assist and be the front man for dealing with the issues. Is, is that correct? Again, it, it is, but I just want to do a better job of explaining what my sad. Sad is in her walking around the house, you know, uh, you know, dressed in black. Sad is not uh, emotionally encouraging or enabling the behavior, meaning that it, it causes her pain, honestly so, when her husband does this, but she still nonetheless is loving. She's gregarious. She is basimcha. She is everything that, you know, is going to help increase that connection, but she doesn't have to hide the fact that this causes her pain, right? You know, she doesn't have to go and, and into the bedroom to cry. Obviously, if this kid's around, yeah, but she doesn't have to hide the fact she's in pain. What she does have to uh, keep to herself is her disapproval because what her husband, and this is important to understand, what her husband needs to know, he doesn't know it consciously, but subconsciously, this is what he wants. I am so amazing. I'm such a great husband and father that in spite of my behavior, my wife is still so lucky to have me and she should be grateful that I am, that she's married to me. That's what he really needs to feed his, you know, ever-growing ego. So again, you're not enabling it. You're not encouraging it. You're not saying this is wonderful. It is something that causes her pain at the same time. He wants to get that, um, get that feeling that, and, and have that belief that she believes, and it would be great if it were authentic, that in spite of these behaviors, he's still so amazing that, you know, taken all together, 
you know, it's a trade-off that, you know, is, is livable. That's really what he needs to hear because otherwise he will view it as a rejection. Like, oh, very nice. I do this. I support this. I give her this, this, and that. And all I want is a little bit of time to do this and this. And suddenly she turns into my rub and, you know, nothing I do is good enough. That unfortunately is how his Yetzirah is going to internalize it. And he's going to view it as a rejection. She should be positive, but he should sense the sadness that she feels from his being involved in those activities, but not disapproval, not disappointment, sadness. When you throw children into the mix and a concern of a mother, or conversely, if it's the wife that's involved in certain activities, a concern of a father is going to be, how does this influence the children? They see a father who is drinking or smoking that could cause the children to be more inspired or inclined to be involved in those activities as well. You see that when it comes to fathers who smoke, oftentimes the kids will go on and smoke because they see it's an acceptable behavior. In a, a wife's mind, she's not only concerned about the husband and the behavior, and the respect that she should have for the husband, but how it's going to impact the children. Would you say the same at Aitza as just uh, keep on going, show your sadness abyssal, but uh, you can't do more than that vis-a-vis the wife? Yeah, and again, obviously we're painting with a broad brush here and we can't give specific advice because we don't know the dynamics and there are some husbands that are going to be more responsive, others less so. The more engaged the ego of the husband is, the more we have to follow this protocol. But yeah, the advice is largely the same. And, you know, it's too easy. And I've just heard well-meaning, well-intentioned people say, no, when it comes to the kids, you have to put your foot down and so on. And yeah, there are times you have to put your foot down, but you have to look down the road and see what is that, what, what's going to happen. So you put the, your foot down and say, you can't do blah, blah, blah. What then if he says, no, I'm going to. So now forget about the fact he's still doing it. Your shalom bias is, is blown up. And now what does this do for the children? So, you know, the children need a number of things in order to grow up as emotionally balanced and healthy as they can. And certainly a warm, nurturing environment is one. Shalom bias is one. And modeling is another one. But modeling is a, is a, is a you know, it's, it's a leg, but it's not always the foundation. And we see this. You can have children grow up in the same house. One goes left, one goes right, one goes far right, one goes this way. People move in different directions. Now, the modeling obviously is the same. Each child has their own sensibilities and sensitivities. So it's too easy to say that if the husband's doing this, that it's going to mess up the kids, period. It's, it is, is a problem for sure. But you always have to ask yourself is, what's the cost? Let's assume you put your foot down, you assert yourself, and it goes south then what? So, you know, you, you have to be judicious, you have to be smart. Um, and, and certainly a husband engaging in, you know, these types of behaviors in front of the children is no doubt has a potential to be quite damaging and destructive. But how you go about him curtailing it is everything. Because look, he doesn't want to destroy his own kids any more than you do. So what happens is this comes up a lot when, you know, let's say you've got a husband who just has lousy chinuch because he grew up in a house where he thinks that chinuch is just screaming, yelling at the child. So, you know, when the wife takes the child's side and defends the child against her spouse in the moment, those predictably go very, very bad because the husband or the, the father further feels alienated from both his wife and the child, doesn't feel controlled, doesn't feel respected, and it just inflames the situation. Not always, but sometimes the protocol is to take the husband's side. As soon as he feels that you're on his side, even if what he's saying is is a little bit out there, he will calm down. And again, the net gain for the child is that the house is now more happier and more harmonious. But our instinct to go ahead and to 
put our husband in his place because he's screaming, yelling at the child for no good reason is only now if it in further inflames and engages and enrages her husband, you haven't accomplished anything. To the contrary, you've moved yourself further away from not only showing bias, but in helping the child. Right. Now, does the, the wife, the mother, maybe whisper into the kid's ears, like, don't think of smoking, don't think of drinking, don't think of X, Y, and Z? Or does she just uh, stay quiet on that, stay silent, and the kids uh, will probably understand the situation? Right. It's a good question. This comes up a lot in, you know, in terms of, you know, how do you mitigate the, the downside? In other words, the natural question to the child is, you know, you don't want to undermine the child's respect for the father. You can't say, Tati's doing something, it's wrong. So you don't do it, but he's doing it because whatever, I don't know why he's doing it. You can't do that. Um, you're better off focusing in on the milers of the, of your husband to your child, how amazing he is, um, how wonderful he is, all the things he gets right. These are the things that will, will allow your child to feel more secure and more safe. And the more secure and safe your child is, the less he's going to engage in these behaviors. You know, I see this a lot with divorces where the husband and, and the wife, they try and, and, and show the child how they're right and how their mother or their father is wrong or crazy and doesn't love them as much. And they try to curry favor and win points. And they don't realize they're undermining that child's emotional security time. And again, the child doesn't care that mommy is smarter than Tati or Tati loves them 1% more than mommy. All these things to, to win points, the net gain is a loss. The, 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 uh, the, the net balance here is a loss to the child because what the child needs is the security of knowing that both parents are there. So I would, you know, mitigate as much as you can and, uh, it, and, and dilute all the negativity in a sea of positivity uh, about your, the spouse to your child. Certainly, um, you can let him, the child know whatever age is appropriate, again, with the guidance of the Rav and maybe, uh, you know, the, the Rebbe, whoever's, you know, in, it, whoever's working with the child that this is coming up as an issue, that, you know, this is not something for Bakram, this is not something that we do and so on. When he gets older, he'll make his own choices, maybe something like that, whatever it is. But the focus should always be positive because ultimately, if you want your child to stay away from self-destructive behaviors and habits and addictions, you want them to feel as safe and secure as possible. And that doesn't happen by undermining your spouse. Right. So one final question. Let's look at it from the perspective of the husband. And he's going to be thinking if his wife is making comments and she is showing her disapproval, disappointment and the like, he's going to be thinking she's really on my case. How should a husband deal with a wife who he feels he's really on his case. And if we put it in the, in the broader context, all the guys are doing this. I'm just going to Kiddush with my friends and that's what we do. And we drink and I come home shaker, but I'm not being any different than my friends. And I want to behave like my friends. I want to have fun with my friends. And my wife, on the other hand, is really on my case for this. And no one else's wife is on their case for this. Right. So he should encourage his wife to listen to this conversation, maybe. Uh, but outside of that, again, ask yourself, what if, if we were objectively looking at the situation and now we know what the husband's thinking, what can we do to optimize this uh, statistical likelihood that he's going to move away from that drinking or from that smoking, whatever he's doing now? Reason will will tell us that beating a husband up, telling him it's wrong, that you know he he shouldn't be doing this and that, will only get us so far, and sometimes often it'll be counterproductive. But reinvigorating the relationship where he actually feels loved and respected and appreciated 
and um, and is is acknowledged at home by his wife, by his children, the other stuff will simply become less attractive, it will become less interesting. It will lose its flavor because he doesn't need to escape. You ask, you ask yourself, why is a person doing anything that they shouldn't be doing in the first place? Is it trying to leave reality? So you can, you know, do all you want to tell the person to stay away from the excursions. But if you made reality a more pleasant, palatable, enjoyable place, the person's just naturally not going to want to leave. So the mistake we make often is by beating the person up for doing what they shouldn't be doing, when really what we should be doing is reinforcing the beauty, the value, and the intrinsic pleasure in the relationship. And the person's not going to be so inclined to deviate or to move away from that into these other areas. So if we make the reality happier, they're not going to feel the need to escape with all those other activities. Right. I mean, look, let's take, take a real life metaphor. You know, virtual reality is becoming just a, you know, it's amazing. The technology you put on these goggles or glasses and you'll have a whole of the world. If a person was already living an amazing, theoretical, ideal, perfect, beautiful life where there's so much simcha, genuine pleasure, connection and joy, they would never for a second put on these glasses to move in an artificial uh, you know, world that offers them a, a counterfeit illusion, a counterfeit reality, some sort of illusion. So going back to us, the more attractive, the more interesting, the more engaged, the more this person, in this case, a husband feels loved and appreciated in the world, he'll lose very, he'll, he'll very quickly lose interest in escaping it. I want to thank you so much for joining us. It is always a pleasure hearing your insights and uh, people should listen and uh, incorporate your lessons into their lives. It's really meaningful. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. You've got a great show. Continue Hatzlacha. And thank you for the opportunity to share some thoughts. I mean, thank you. Joining us now is Rabbi Ben Sion Shafir. Rabbi Shafir is the director of the popular website, theschmooze.com. He's an expert on Shalom Bayis and many other areas as well. And he recently published an excellent book, 10 Really Dumb Mistakes That Very Smart Couples Make. I indeed read it cover to cover. There is a lot of important information and advice in that book. Very helpful. Rabbi Shafir, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Hi. So Rabbi Shafir, people come to you for advice. I know they do that, but uh, let's assume they come to you for advice. Is there a governing principle or governing principles that you use when you advise people on Shalom bias issues? You know, it's an interesting question. It's, it's a broad question, but l- let me say this. It's my firm belief that Hashem did not intend for marriages to succeed only if you're a big tzaddik. Meaning everyone knows that midos and being a good giving person is a key to a successful marriage. But it's my firm belief that Hashem did not intend only marriages of those people who are tzaddikim to succeed. And there is very much a, a Torah shkafa on a marriage succeeding, even if you're a regular person like a regular person. But the problem is that we human beings are extremely biased and we see things only from our perspective. And by the way, when I wrote the book, half of my intention was to allow a husband to understand his wife's perspective and allow a wife to understand a husband's perspective. Because you see, a Torah perspective on marriage requires me being able to climb into the world of my spouse and understand the world from their perspective as well. So I, I guess the answer to your question, Rabbi Wasserman, is yes, there is a Torah shkafa. The great difficulty is how do you apply it to yourself and how do you avoid the bias, the natural bias that we all tend to have to view things from my perspective only? 
Uh-huh, very good. Okay, so so yeah, our show is it's combining a number of issues that uh, we've had shows on in the past. We've had Shalom Bay shows uh, dealing with the wife: should she surrender? Should the husband surrender? And we had a number of shows on uh, lavish living. Uh, generally, the husband going off and uh, having an enjoyable, lavish time with his friends and getting shikret kiddushim, all this. And and a friend mentioned to me, he said, "You missed the most important point. You missed the issue of what does a wife do." when she has a husband that she views as basically having checked out, or maybe he hasn't fully checked out, but certainly he is dabbling in the areas that she is not in agreement with. And the fundamental question that we're trying to grapple with, and I'd like to hear your input on, is when a wife says, I'm done, or she says, I can't handle it anymore, I've had enough, and she comes to you and asks advice, and uh, those are the issues that she has with her husband, what do you tell her? Okay, so first of all, number one, I I like the way you phrase that. When she has an issue like that, she goes to someone to ask advice. She goes to a Rav, and she goes to someone. I I can't stress the importance of having a Dastora in your life, in your family, and everything you do. When we first got married, I remember my wife said to me at a certain point, everything, everything you asked her is Shiva. But after we were married about two years or so, she said, maybe we we should ask for a shiva. Because when you're dealing with life issues, and especially when you're making decisions, the ability to have someone who you can go to, a third party who's wiser, who has some life experience, more than anything, hopefully has das Torah, is a huge, huge advantage. So the first thing is, it is imperative. It is vital for every family, every marriage, every individual to have a das Torah. It should be a rov, it should be someone you go to, someone you ask your questions to. And I, I think that's the first step in, in saving so much trouble. But I, I really want to focus on two different things that you, you asked over there. One is when the husband is checked out. That's one example. And the other is when you say the husband is doing things the wife doesn't like doing. But I consider them two very different aspects. You see, checked out usually means to me they're out of the relationship. They're not connecting. That's a very serious problem that can be dealt with much more simply and readily than the first. That's something that a wife has to sit down with her husband and have to discuss what kind of marriage do we want? What kind of marriage do we and the ability to spend time together. And again, in the book, I spent a lot of time on that, stressing the importance of not just date night, but creating a vibrant, happy marriage requires spending time together, not being ships in the night just passing, but it requires a tremendous amount of focus on doing just that. And it's something that can can and should be discussed as a couple that I feel we're not connecting. I feel we're not spending enough time together. Again, it's a big part of the book because people don't realize it. I've dealt with hundreds and hundreds of couples and many times, many, many times they have no issues. It's not like he became a drunk. She became a shopaholic. It's much more that they stop connecting, stop spending time together. And for marriage to succeed, there must be a vibrant love relationship. There has to be real time spent together. And that's something that as a couple, they need to focus on. And that's very solvable. But honestly, that's the first problem. The second one you mentioned is a very different situation. Um, the second situation where a woman feels that her husband is doing things that she doesn't like. And more than that, she's, as you say, she's had it, she's fed up. So would you excuse me for a minute if I, if I dealt with that question per se? Is that yes, right? please. That, that's our main topic. So absolutely. Okay, so here we go. I want you to imagine the following. Imagine Jim Kipper. And in the middle of the day, a woman comes home from shul and she finds her husband sitting on the couch, eating a ham sandwich and smoking a cigar. So she does what any self-respecting woman would do. Put that down right now. It's Yom Kippur. What's wrong with you? 
Now, I don't have to tell you that what he's doing is wrong, and she has every right to be aghast, shocked, and certainly upset. But what she did wasn't right either, because she stepped outside of her role as a friend and lover. Reim Ahuvim. That defines the relationship. But you may say, what do you mean, Jim Kipper? He's violating the most basic halachas. Doesn't she have a right to demand that he stop? The answer is she has every right to demand that he stop if she were his rabbi, his mentor, his mother. But that's not what she is. She's his life's partner. She's his friend. Equal partners in this thing called marriage. But that's the point. Not in charge of him, not his boss, not his rov. Now, she may have a choice to make. She may come to recognition that this is not the partnership that she contracted for, and she may have to decide to end that partnership. But there's one thing that's a certain. As long as she's in that partnership, she has no right to demand, command, dictate, because they're equal partners with different roles. They're best friends who love each other. And I think that defines exactly the problem in so many relationships. Let's, in fact, assume that the wife has had it. She's fed up, and she puts down her foot. What's the result of that? The result of that is what he's going to hear is not his best friend, not his lover. And really, this is the point. Does she have a right to do that? I don't know if she has a right to, but she's going to wreck the relationship. Let's switch it and say that it's the husband that's had it with the wife. She's out with her friends and she's going off to Miami with the ladies and stuff. Would you say the same thing when he walks in and on Yom Kippur, she's having a a cigarette and she's having a beer and putting whatever uh, uh, the parallel would be for a woman? Would you say, she knows that Yom Kippur, that's not your role? Exactly the same thing, because you see, it, it is audacious of me to assume I'm in charge over here. It's, it's, I'm, in, I'm the boss. I'll tell you what to do. Now, again, if I were your Rebbe, your mentor, your teacher, then I have every right to put my foot down and say, that's it. Ad Khan, and that's it. But that's not the relationship. The minute I act as Rebbe, mentor, teacher, I stepped outside of the relationship of Reim Ahuvim. I'm no longer a friend. I'm no longer a partner in this thing called marriage. I'm your boss. I'm in charge. I'll tell you what to do. And what I'm doing is I'm wrecking the relationship. So I'm going to win that battle, but I'm going to lose the war because what I'm doing is destroying the underpinning of the relationship. And many times people do this on a regular basis. They assume this is my area. This is my, I'll I'll set things straight. If I don't put my foot down, what's going to happen? And what they end up doing is overstepping their bounds and destroying the relationship. Right. Now, I want to go back to an important point. You said you need a Das Torah. If we have a woman in this situation, or it could be a man in this situation, and they need an Eitzah. Mm-hmm. Is it appropriate that she gets on WhatsApp or whatever other mechanism of communication that is used nowadays and she wants to discuss it with her group of friends or her close, three first closest chaveros? I need an Eitsa. We're having this issue with my husband and uh, we're, we're boats going in different directions in the night and we don't have a, a connection anymore. Is that an appropriate way to get Eitsas from, from, from the, uh, or, or is that not the right direction? Okay, it's certainly a good question to ask because it's done all the time. And I have to be honest with you. Number one, it's Lashon Hara or Achilles, depending on how, how many Isur, the amount of Isurim that you'll violate on any given moment in that situation is beyond, beyond calculation. But let's deal with the other issue. Strategically, is it wise? Here's the first problem. The first problem is you are very emotionally charged, heated. Now, your friend is going to be supportive. It's very unlikely that your friend is going to have the perspective or the wisdom to direct you in any manner to help you make the situation better. I deal with couples all the time, and I'll be honest with you. I know that when I hear the husband's story, I'm not hearing half. 
When I hear the woman's side, I'm not hearing half. When I put the two together and go back and forth and back and forth within about two hours time, maybe I can get an understanding of what's going on. But one thing I guarantee, when you're telling the story over to your friend, your friend is not getting an accurate description of what's happening. She's hearing your side. As a friend, she's going to defend you. What she's going to do is help you dig in deeper and deeper into whatever part of the problem you are. No matter what happens, we all have a part to play in this. And there's the idea of one party being innocent and the other party guilty. It never happens in a marriage. In other words, again, after dealing with hundreds and hundreds of couples, I almost have never seen it where one party is 100% guilty and the other percent completely innocent. It might be 60, 40, 70, 30 but you've played a part as well. But the problem is when you're saying it over to your friend, your friend is going to hear your side. Your friend is going to help you understand your side, defend you, be in your position. And she's going to dig you deeper and deeper into the show. She's not going to give you any advice that's going to help you reframe it, understand the perspective. She's going to dig in deeper and deeper. But watch the next step. The next step is let's assume at a certain point you make up with your husband and you make up and now you're good again. Your friend is not going to hear the makeup Your friend is not going to understand what happened afterwards. And your friend is going to keep those words that your husband said ever in her mind. And she's going to remind you about them and going to repeat them. It's one of the worst advice in the world for a woman to discuss with her close circle of friends what her husband does wrong. Now, again, it's very important to get advice. But advice means from a neutral party who has some life understanding, some wisdom, hopefully a rov, or if not a rov, at least someone who has enough understanding of life that they can direct you to understand what you can do better, how you can improve the situation. And if you need professional help, or if you need outside help to direct you to do that. But that's very rare. That's what friends or families do. Usually they just exacerbate the problem. So my recommendation would be don't do it. First of all, again, I believe it's it's Lashon Hara and potentially Rechilis, many, many Isurim. There's very little to Ellis that comes out of it. It's hard to recognize it as anything good. So I would recommend strictly, strictly and strongly against it. So Rabbi Shafir, um, what you're saying is, and it's an interesting approach, and I want to get to, into a little bit more detail, is Reim Auvim, you're not his mashkiach, and that's husband, wife, wife to husband. Now that doesn't mean you should be passive and agree with everything the spouse is saying. That means get your help elsewhere, get your advice elsewhere without trying to deal with the issue directly head on. Yeah, but you see what Rabbi Watson, what it means more than that is you're not responsible for the spiritual level of your spouse. Everyone seems to take on this responsibility. I'm responsible for my husband or I'm responsible for my wife. You are responsible for your spiritual level. You're responsible to work on your learning, your dominating, your bitachan, you're very, very responsible to grow, but you're responsible for your spiritual level. You're not responsible for the spiritual level of your spouse. So if your wife is wearing dresses that you don't approve of, now as a friend, you can mention it, first of all, I rarely recommend doing it, but you can mention it once, but that's it. After you mention it, and she knows clearly where you're holding, mentioning again is going to do only one thing. It's going to bother her it's going to hurt her. It's going to say to her in very loud terms, I disapprove of you. But it's not your role. It's not your job. Your job is to be a friend. Your job is to be a support. When she's ready to grow, when she's ready to change, she will. If you're going to introduce a new dimension to your marriage, where I'm the rabbi, I'm the mentor, I'm the rebbe, I'm in charge, what you're going to do is you're going to wreck the relationship. You're not going to help her grow and you're going to wreck the the marriage. Okay, so based on that, if we if we throw kids into the mix, we throw the children into the mix, and we have one of the spouses that's not doing uh, the best 
activities of the best behavior. And the children do see that and the children can very easily learn. And it could be a lack of dose. It could be lack of commitment to going to davening or learning, or it could be much worse when they learn to smoke or do drugs, whatever it is, whatever the behavior is. So here, it's not simply a wife not being the mashkiach over the, over the husband. Okay, I can hear that. But she does have to be the mashkiach over the children. So how, how do we deal with that in, the, in this situation that uh, we, we do have collateral damage that has to be dealt with? Right. That's a very, very good question. The husband is acting as a poor example for the children. What does the wife do? So let me say this. Any bad behavior that the husband is going to be engaged in is a bad model for the children. But I guarantee that far worse than that is the model of a bad marriage. Meaning, if you're going to wreck your marriage and you're going to be fighting and quibbling, that's going to be so much more destructive to your children than any bad behavior that your husband might engage in. So let's take it for instance, your husband smokes or he drinks or whatever it may be. It is clearly a bad example for your children and could have a damage. But I guarantee that if you guys are going to fight, it's going to be far more destructive to your children. To your children, especially when they're little, you guys are the center of gravity. You're 10 feet tall. When mommy and Abba don't get along, that means everything in the world is to be questioned. There's nothing that's stable. There's nothing that can be guaranteed. The single greatest investment you can make in your children being wholesome and happy kids developing is a solid shalom bias. If you guys get along, if there's peace in the home, then you'll develop healthy children. Now, they may see bad examples, and you may have to deal with that. But if you have a wholesome child who has a bad example in his life, he could still develop into a beautiful child. If you have a child who's brought up in a rocky marriage, in a rocky home, then his entire self-image, his entire sense of self is in jeopardy. And that is far more destructive than any evil or any bad that your husband or your wife may be doing. So my recommendation is keep your eyes on your side of the mechitza. You're responsible for your spiritual development. You're not responsible for your spouses. If your husband does something you don't like, you have every right to talk to him, you have every right to discuss it, but he is an equal partner. And at a certain point, he says, I don't want to stop smoking or I don't want to stop drinking. You're not his boss. You're not his mentor. You're not his rebbe. And you don't have a right to command or demand him to change. And if you do, all you're going to do, he's not going to change. What you're going to do is wreck your marriage and damage your children far worse than any bad behavior that he might be engaging in. You're basically saying choose the least of the evils, the lesser of the evils. In this case, absolutely. Mm-hmm. All right. Rabbi Shafir, I really want to thank you so much for joining us. Always insightful. And again, if it's okay, if I plug the book again, great book. Anyone who has uh, issues or doesn't have issues, uh, highly recommended. So thank you for joining us and thank you for writing such a great book. Thank you, Rabbi Wasserman. A pleasure as always. Joining us now is Mrs. Laura Doyle. Mrs. Doyle is a relationship expert and best-selling author, having written the famous The Surrendered Wife and also The Empowered Wife and a handful of other books as well. She has helped over 15,000 women fix their broken marriages without their husband's involvement. Mrs. Doyle, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here, Mr. Wasserman. Thank you so much. So, well, I have a, a question that I think can shed light on your whole approach to relationships between spouses. And I'm going to start actually at the back of your book, the back of the book of The Surrendered Wife, which I spent a lot of time reading. Very interesting. Thank you. It says about the author, Laura Doyle, a feminist and former shrew. So I'm not going to focus on the feminist because it's less relevant for our conversation. But 
a former shrew. Former means a past shrew. And I looked it up in preparation for this call. And a shrew, I'll define it and tell me if you agree or disagree. A shrew, according to Merriam-Webster's dictionary, is an ill-tempered, scolding woman. According to dictionary.com, a woman of violent temper and speech. And, and I guess the question is twofold then. Uh, why are you a former shrew, which means you were a shrew? And do we have uh, agreement on the definition of a shrew? Because I, I think this is going to shed light on your whole approach to what we call shalom bayis, shalom bayis relationships between husband and wife. Yes, shalom bayis, very important concept. Yeah, I agree with your definition of a shrew. I was a humorless toothache of a wife, unfortunately. And I don't think that I really realized just how scolding and ill-tempered I was back in the bad old days. I thought that I was being helpful. I thought that my intentions were good and that was going to help improve my husband, you know, tell him how to be more ambitious and how he could be more romantic and also uh, how he could help me clean up a lot more around the house. And unfortunately, that didn't work at all. He wanted nothing to do with me. He was very distant. Um, and I was very lonely and really heartbroken about that. And that Unfortunately, my solution was to become even more ill-tempered and kind of double down on that thinking that, well, if he sees how upset I am, then he'll really be motivated to change. And Mr. Wasserman, that never worked. You know, my husband um, was much more inspired when I got the information um, that I have now that has helped make my marriage, has given us shalom bias and has uh, made things the way that I dreamed that they would be when I was a little girl, when I grew up and got married about how loving and... Um, wonderful it would be. And in the process of doing the things that made my marriage magical again, what happened was I went on the best self-improvement program I'd ever been on. And um, I'm happy to say that I am no longer nearly as shrewish as I once was, although uh, I am also a mere mortal woman. And sometimes I will hear things come out of my mouth that I'm not super proud of. So to this day, I'm very grateful that I learned how to take responsibility for that and apologize uh, to my husband when I am disrespectful. Wow. Okay. So I, I'm sure he appreciates uh, the book and your whole approach to this. And and based on that, being a former shrew, and I, what I'm hearing is that the, the approach was to try to improve those, what we call midos, those character traits, and have that improve the marriage as well. So when it comes to the target audience of the surrendered wife or the empowered wife, we don't have to get into what is surrendered and empowered. I, I think that's just cosmetics, because we'll talk more about the substance of the books. When it comes to the approach of the books, who is your target audience? Is it shrews who are having the same issues and I, I would love to be able to to, to quote a little bit in the book you know it's a, a wives who are controlling or nagging or demeaning their husbands I mean you have the the test at the beginning of the book which is very interesting so who, who's your target audience for the book well um I I feel a little uh pain when I think about is it for shrews because <laughs> I don't think I would have uh raised my hand so much right if someone said well are you a shrew you would need this book but if someone had said um are you are you puzzled about why your husband is um is distant why he's not helping why he seems more interested in watching reruns than um doing anything you know with you so so for me it's for any woman who's feeling heartbroken lonely exhausted overwhelmed with all the responsibilities at home that's something i, I certainly identified with and who really values a good marriage she really thinks that that is important uh, i certainly do because uh, the whole world really depends on strong families and strong families means 
strong marriages. Uh, so for me, it's a, for a woman who's really committed, dedicated, and courageous enough to embark on the quest of making that marriage uh, really wonderful. Now, there are a lot of women, especially Orthodox women, that are exhausted because they have tremendous responsibilities and if they have a number of kids and they're juggling a tremendous amount. Now, now from, from, from reading through the book, I, I didn't think it was just a target of the overworked, underpaid wife. It's, it's, it's more, it's more about the, uh, how she approaches her husband. Is that correct? Um, well, gosh, I think both are true. I think the overwhelm, um, I was overwhelmed too, and I don't even have children, Mr. Washerman. So, um, but I had given myself so many responsibilities because I wanted everything done a certain way. And that was my way. And if my husband tried to do it, if he tried to help me, um, I was critical. And so he got the message like, don't try to help. Uh, and I think this is pretty common. I remember one husband telling me, he goes, yeah, my, I had a baby. He said, but only my wife could watch, wash the baby bottles the right way. So I didn't know how to help her. So I just got out of her way. Uh, and so that was true of me too. So I think the overwhelm, uh, in my case, it was pretty self-inflicted. Uh, I'm certainly no longer overwhelmed. I feel really well taken care of. But I, I do think, gosh, when you've got eight or nine children or... Uh, and you have the, a big holiday coming up. Um, that is tremendous overwhelm and life can kind of conspire to make things busy and to make you tired. So, uh, and, and I just know for me, when I'm overwhelmed and tired, I don't show up as my best self at all. That's when some of those unpleasant tendencies are most likely to come out or, you know, my husband's little foibles, uh, are most likely to rub me the wrong way. So I, I'm very ambitious about guarding against being overwhelmed, overdrawn with my energy because I know that's how I'm going to be able to show up as my best self and then have my best marriage. Right. And I definitely hear that the more complex the lives are, the more kids, the more schools to choose from, the more marriages you have to plan, the more the opportunity is for you to have uh, conflict or uh, tension between the spouses. And especially if that exhaustion, that doesn't bring out the best in either of the spouses. I know we're focused on the wife right now, but that would be either of the spouses. So when when I read through the book, which I did in detail, a, a lot of the discussion into handling the issues, especially when the wife is desiring that things be done in specific ways, like your example of the baby bottle, or it could be anything. It can be unloading the dishwasher and not clanking the dishes one on the other, or how to clean a plot and not let it splash all over the place like men would be prone to do and the like. So a lot of the discussion was the wife taking a step back and letting the husband breathe. Well, give him a little bit yes. of breathing space and, and let him handle his own affairs, right? Is that, is that, is that correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I'll tell you a quick story about that. So one of my students, um, Kathy Murray was the CFO of a large private school. So she had a big job and she was really good at it. And she was also trying to help her husband manage the finances at home, you know, telling him how to save money and how to spend. And her marriage was in big trouble. And there was just tremendous distance in that marriage. Very, uh, they were more like roommates really than husband and wife. And it was her second marriage. And, um, so she got a hold of the information. She got, she read this from her wife and, uh, she got an inkling like, okay, maybe I could take a step back and let my husband breathe. And he, uh, came to her and said, um, I need you to tell me what you want me to do with our cell phone plan. We need a, we need a new plan. And so she said the, the, one of the magical phrases we use, which is whatever you think as in you can handle that for us, you know? And he said, oh no, I need you to tell me what you want me to do. Cause he knew that he was going to get in trouble if he didn't do it the right way. And so she said, no, um, whatever you think. And she added, I trust you. I trust you. So he went away and she was afraid he was going to mess it up. 
but he didn't. He did fine. And then uh, he came to her that night. He put his hand on her shoulder. And he said, you were so nice today. And just tears ran down her cheeks. And she's, that was 20 years ago. She still gets tears in her eyes when she talks about how tragic it would have been because they were on the verge of, the, of a divorce as well. Uh, if she had thrown this guy out just because uh, she did not realize she had become like a smother mother to him. Uh, so just through this use of this one cheap phrase that helped her take that step back. Um, there was just a tremendous reconciliation. It was the beginning of a, a, a lifelong journey. She's now she's now a coach with me uh, and she has a, a, a wonderful marriage. And uh, so she's, she's a real beacon of hope of what's possible. Yeah, that, that is very, very powerful. When a, and a, a spouse can say to the other, I trust you. That that certainly is very powerful. Now, there's something that, I, that I've been wondering about and it's actually in the book on, on page 35. I wish I knew the Talmud as well as I know your book and uh, it, it says there honor his choice of socks and stocks and uh, one of the phrases is in fact no matter what your husband does you will not try to teach improve or correct him give him a space let him breathe so what, what I'm wondering is how far does this extend and an example would be a, a husband that is doing things that may be harmful to him at least the wife views it as harmful to him and obviously there's a whole spectrum of, of what harm is not harmful to her not harmful to the kids but harmful to him for example he smokes He's vaping, drinking alcohol. Let's assume it's not dangerous for anyone else. Marijuana, maybe even something more serious. So do we still apply that general principle of no matter what your husband does, you will not try to teach, improve or correct him? Or is there a certain at a certain point you put your foot down? Hmm. Well, I love this question because it certainly seemed clear to me that it was my job to help improve my husband and tell him when he was doing something that was not good for him or dressing the wrong way for his job interview or yeah, maybe drinking too much or not driving the right way. And um, I'll tell you another quick story. I had another, um, I had a guest on my podcast who was actually the husband of a woman who'd recently been through my coach training program and um, had saved their marriage. It was very much on the brink of divorce. And one of the things he shared that was just astonishing was that his wife often told him he drank too much. He needed to stop drinking. He was an alcoholic. It was ruining his health and it was terrible for their children. So she had told him this many, many times. And he said, and I'll tell you what, my reaction was, good, then I'll just drink more. And he said, but when his wife decided to trust him, she uh, uh, she started following the principles of the surrendered wife. And she actually relinquished control of the finances to him. And she said, I want to, you know, this is too stressful for me. I know you're going to be good at this and, and I trust you. And she did some other things. And he said, all of a sudden, I felt this full weight of the responsibility for my family on my shoulders. And he and he said, I'm proud to say because of my wife's actions, I'm 18 months sober. Oh, very, that, that's a nice point. Yeah. That's isn't it right. incredible? I was blown away that uh, he would frame it that way. He gave all the credit to his wife for creating, um, I call it a kind of an emotional safety, that trust uh, that Kathy Murray used in her, her sharing as well. So it was incredible to see how the response of feeling nagged, you know, having his faults pointed out, having his, yeah, his foibles uh, magnified was got such a different reaction than her expecting the best out of her husband. Right. Very good. So, so sometimes there's a nice ending, but sometimes the husband, for example, has friends and it's a, it's a, it's a men's club type of thing. And they go out drinking and they get what we call shaker drunk uh, and they enjoy right. it and it's on the Sabbath and it's just what the guys do. And, and if, if she doesn't um, have very fond views of those activities, should she say something or just let boys be boys? <laughs> well, I'll tell you another story. I have a, another coach who um, also felt that her husband was an alcoholic and she was a teetotaler. So she didn't 
care for this at all. She felt uh, really upset that she was losing a lot of time with him because he wasn't very exciting to be around when he was when he was drunk. Shicker. Shicker. Okay, when he was shickered. So, um, so she decided to use this, we call it a spouse fulfilling prophecy with him to change her focus. Um, so she, and this was uh, her third marriage. And she, re- she really had a strong desire to have this marriage be a success. So she decided to start saying to him, so her old spouse fulfilling prophecy, her unwitting one was, you're an alcoholic, you drink too much, which uh, is not the experience she wanted to be having. So she decided to switch it up and started saying, I appreciate that you're such a moderate drinker. So she started saying this to him and she found some evidence. She found the evidence that uh, there was this one friend in his boys club that he drank with and that guy drank way more than her husband. So she's, well, you know, compared to him. And she said, and uh, he, he never drove drunk. So that was a big one for her. She, she pointed that out as evidence. And she just kind of kept focusing on this and gathering the evidence, just like you would in a court of law. You're going to go before a judge and jury. You know, my husband's a moderate drinker. So not long after that, they were on a cruise. And on this cruise, they went to a port of call where they said, you get two free drinks. And they said, or for $20, you can upgrade to unlimited drinks. And she thought, well, he's definitely going to upgrade. Of course he is. That's how he is. And then he uh, he declined the upgrade and she was surprised. So she said to him, well, why didn't you upgrade to unlimited drinks? And he goes, well, I think two drinks is enough. I just like to drink moderately. At least when you're my wife is around. <laughs> uh, well, Perhaps, perhaps, but it sounds to me like he had also taken on the identity that she was reflecting back to him. And I think there is enormous power in that, that when husbands right. look into their wife mirror, that what they see reflected back uh, it has a great influence on them. My right. husband has a great influence on me. Uh, so I, I, I take very seriously what I'm reflecting back to him. Uh, I want that to be a good um, positive experience for both of us. So tre- tread lightly, in other words, there are times that you can insinuate and try to educate, but not in a, in a frontal attack. Well, to what end, I guess, would be, um, yeah, a frontal attack you would certainly want to avoid. Uh, and I think there's something to be said that, uh, you know, I chose my husband and uh, it, w- when I chose him, I, I really thought that was a great choice. And I think every bride, you know, feels like, oh, this is a great choice I'm making right now. Uh, and so we can what you focus on increases. So you can either focus on, oh my gosh, he's out with the boys drinking too much again, or you can focus on, you know, and uh, he's a wrench, you know, he works hard to support our family and he's, or he's studying hard or he's, he's a wonderful father. He's a wonderful teacher, whatever it is, right. That you can be focused on. So I think in some cases we don't want to be myopic and, uh, and have an unpleasant experience where there really is so much to be grateful for. I, I like to call that the bundle theory. Don't, don't pick on specific things, but look at the entirety of the person look at the entire bundle and uh, that's what we say when people are dating you're never going to get it perfect but look at the entirety yeah. of the bundle so I, I that's that that makes that's a lot right. of sense to me it makes a lot of sense now what what happens when we throw kids into the mix and we have a father who, who we're not going to say he's he's drunk all the time but he, he he enjoys drinking and smokes on occasion and obviously children look to their parents constantly as examples and they will often mirror what the parents are doing and we have a wife here that that uh, knows she doesn't want her kids to be drinkers, smokers, or whatever, whatever the vice is. And we have the father that is 
uh, he's, he's functioning well, but he is doing those activities. And when he has business trips, he's heading out to Vegas and Atlantic City, and he's having a little bit fun there as well. So in that instance, I can imagine a wife is going to feel a little bit more, uh, I don't know if the word is desperate, but more more inspired to stop those activities. So should we go past uh, trying to insinuate to the husband or still we have to be consider, concerned more about the relationship between the spouses? Mm. Maybe that's the key as opposed to worrying right now about the kids. Well, I love where you're going with that. Now, uh, since I don't have any children, I am the perfect mother still. So, which is great, you know, so I can give all kinds of uh, <laughs> insight about how to be the right kind of mother. What I will say, though, is uh, back to that story about the husband who was 18 months sober uh, when I interviewed him and, and talked about how his wife um, inspired that. They had two young boys and those uh, boys, uh, when he was drinking, of course, uh, there was suffering for them and pro- and probably bad modeling, I think would be uh, an implication I've heard from both the husband and the wife in that situation. And, and so very painful, very heartbreaking for a mother who only wants the best for her children, of course. Uh, and then in, as he, uh, as the wife relinquished control over his drinking, which she really couldn't control anyway. Um, and he made these better choices out of seeing her conviction about his greatness, really him, her standing for his greatness. Um, he got much more involved with those kids. He's the homework hero. Now they do all the homework together together every day. He's the their coach for uh, their sports games now. And none of that was happening prior to. So I guess what I would point to is that the the pain of seeing the modeling being uh, not what you want at all is uh, I wouldn't want to dismiss that for a second. And only fathers can uh, show children fathering. And they can, they're the only ones that can show little boys how to be men. Uh, and, you know, God gave you a mother and a father for a reason. Uh, so I, I, I do think there's a a great deal to be said for giving those children the home court advantage of a mother and father who love each other, a mother who respects her her husband and models that for the children is an incredible uh, gift to those children. It might even be more so than the damage that she feels is going on from seeing the children seeing the husband drinking. Right. I recently heard spe- uh, somebody speaking and he says, what's more important, the relationship between a parent and a child or the parents together? And he said that the relationship between the parents is much more important because if there is shalom bias between the parents, that will trickle down to the kids. So I think that's that's basically what you're saying then. We'll, we'll stick with the shalom bias, even though he's a shikr. Yes, shalom bias. And, and he doesn't have to continue to be a shikr forever. That could evolve as she changes, right? That um, she, you change the dynamics in your home uh, in favor of Shalom Boyes, that that is going to change everything. Right. So very good. So, so it, we're back to the woman's having a tough time. She has issues with the husband. She's a shrew. She's exhausted, etc. And the husband right now is not her address for communication. And she feels she needs to speak with someone. What, what does she do in that situation? Say it again. The husband is not. It's not her address for communication to talk about the issues that she's having with him in general, with life. <laughs> um, yeah. and, 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 and she wants to complain. She wants advice 
she's got issues with him. Oh. How does she handle? Oh. My heart breaks for her because I remember feeling this way. Like I just need to get this off my chest, and I'm and he won't listen to me, and um, it just turns into an argument, and we have these miserable conversations. I call them State of the Union addresses on the couch, and I am pleased to report that we no longer have that. And in fact, I consider, uh, you know, there's no. First of all, I don't feel the need to hash out our issues, and I certainly don't have much to complain about anymore. But um, I did need a, a place for those feelings to have their day in the sun. It was super important to me in the early days when I was trying to get a grip on how to make my marriage last and make it thrive. And so that's where my girlfriends were just invaluable to me. I wanted to be able to say, oh my gosh, my husband walked across the new rug and he had just polished his shoes and now the new rug is ruined because there's shoe polish all over it. And my husband already felt bad about it. And I didn't want to make him feel any worse, but I did need to you know, say something like, oh, I'm just so disappointed about my new rug. I loved my beautiful new rug. So having the the women that I could speak to was incredibly invaluable. But then as I as I learned more, I became very conscious of, um, you know, you always hear the advice, don't complain. And I thought, well, that's great. But that didn't stop me because I had a lot to complain about, I thought. And now these days, I um, consider every complaint a lazy desire. That means I need to get into that complaint and find out what is it that I'm wanting? I want to express that as a desire because desires inspire my husband. I can express that desire in a way that's going to inspire him. And now I can get what I want. So I used to say things like, John, this kitchen is a disaster area. And I thought he would jump off the couch and start cleaning the kitchen. And of course that never happened. But when I finally one day said to him, uh, John, I would love a clean kitchen. He said, all right, I will clean it. And he did. And that was over 20 years ago. And he's been cleaning it ever since. I do dishes like never because he knows it makes his wife happy that he does the dishes. So once I could take that complaint and figure out how my, what, what could I, what would I have if, uh, you know, to stop complaining about basically, what is it that I want uh, and express that? It was like magic. I turn it into a positive. Turn it into a positive. So but, but right now we're having challenges before we've get uh, John being trained. So everyone <laughs> else is, John, we're not trained right now. And right. and uh, we want to discuss with people. Now, it, under Jewish law, there are certain limitations about who you can schmooze with. You don't want to announce uh, your personal issues to your your closest uh, 30 friends or something. So, so. No. That's so true. Yeah. In, in the book, it's at page 231, it says, uh, you tell your girlfriend how sad you feel that your husband hasn't approached you for intimacy in weeks and he's belittling you. How do we approach these more sensitive issues? Uh, go to a therapist, go to your rabbi, go rather than going to, to the to the girlfriends. How, would that be effective or is it something that's fundamental? You know, this is one of the reasons I have, we started the programs that we have on our campus is that that, that very thing. And uh, it's it's not just uh, Jewish women that can't talk to everybody about that. You don't necessarily want to do that and maybe ruin your husband's reputation uh, within your community. Uh, so it is very vital to, and possibly a rabbi or a therapist um, would be a good outlet for that too. But I, yeah, but I love, um, so, so one of the things we do on our campus is we have group coaching. We have about three group coaching sessions a day that people can come to and then, and share these kinds of things and really hear from other women as well 
and it's it's very anonymous. You know, uh, you don't have to use your real name. You don't you don't have to come on camera. Uh, but you could be sharing something um, that is uh, re- really uh, personal and uh, important for you to say out loud. Uh, and, and I do consider that just incredibly valuable. Right, I hear, I hear. Speaking to somebody who can help you, having a, that listening ear. Now, let, yes. let's talk about the husband. We're, we're, we're going through the difficult process of trying to improve the, the relationship between the two and the husband. Uh, we're giving him space and uh, we're not going to be demanding do things this way and that way and stop doing this and stop doing that. And he turns to you and he says, and he's, he's not going to call you uh, Mrs. So he'll call you Laura. And he'll say, uh, you know, Mrs. Doyle, Laura, I need some advice. I want to quit my job. Laura, I want to go river rafting and uh, I'm excited about this and you know he doesn't know how to swim and you're concerned. Could your job, we're not going to have any income coming in. He doesn't know how to swim. You think he's going to drown, which could happen. Well, what's your approach right now? Do you not say anything? Do you still bite your tongue or do you say uh, you're just not speaking very, very clearly? Very, Mr. Wasserman. I, <laughs> I would definitely always ch- try to choose my faith in my husband and I almost see that as a metaphor for trusting God because um in some ways, uh, I mean, there's so much in the world to be afraid about, right? We could get afraid about a lot of things. Uh, there's rumors of war and issues with the climate or whatever, right? We can always um, get ourselves worked up and my husband might drive in the car and be killed that way. Or uh, And uh, so, but my husband's, his instincts, right? His uh, initiatives, I value that very much. I, I'm attracted to that about him. And I, it's part of why I married him. Uh, he, I think he's got great ideas and, he, you know, river rafting, you know, it sounds like it might be a lot of fun or quitting your job. Boy, that, well, that will certainly be a big change for us but maybe it will lead to greater prosperity or maybe it will lead to um, having more gratification in his work and being happier and, uh, and us being happier as a family. So yeah, in theory, you know, as I say, I'm a mere mortal woman. So uh, and it's not that my husband doesn't know my preferences. You know, I am always saying what I would love, you know, you know, I might say something like, well, I sure love the security that I feel right now with your current job. Uh, or I might say, well, uh, I mean, with the river rafting one, I don't see a good way to, except to, to communicate that I don't trust him, right? If I say, are you sure that's a good idea? You know, you can't swim, right? He knows he can't swim. So really all I'm saying is, you know, I think you're kind of making a mistake. I, don't, I think you're wrong. Uh, I think he might be kind of stupid for wanting to do that really is kind of the subtext. Uh, and so that's a message that I would uh, really try to find uh, a way to not communicate to my husband because again, I'm speaking into him, right? I'm, I'm setting an expectation for uh, the experience that I'm going to have. Uh, and so I, I love to see the best in my husband and, and just trust. Uh, and the man takes risks sometimes and, and it's scary and, uh, but it's exciting. And that's part of the kind of life I want to live uh, where we're pushing ourselves forward. Uh, you know, even writing a book called The Surrender Wife is a risk too, right? There's a lot of risks in life. And yet it's been very gratifying and rewarding. So I also want to focus on how there's an upside to what he's saying and not just always be a fear-based, right? Right, right. So so there, there are times if it, if it means challenging the husband, if it means saying you're making a bad decision, keep your mouth shut, keep your mouth. And, and I think you said you said the same thing when it comes to dealing with his bad mood. You know, if he's going through a tough time, also give him his space. If he's uh, if he's uh, in the house and having a very difficult time, you may want to walk out and uh, you'll be back later. That's it's a similar concept, right? Yeah. 
I mean, sometimes um, I'll think there's a bad mood and really there's pensiveness or, or sometimes it's actually a reaction to something I just said. And I didn't realize that that was what was happening. And then I'm getting more and more upset because he seems like he's in a bad mood, right? There can be a vicious cycle there. And I prefer to, if, if I can choose the virtuous cycle where I'm uh, then figuring out what's going to delight me, what's going to make me happy, smiling, laughing right in this moment. Uh, you know, I remember one woman said her husband always came home in a bad mood and she would try to get him out of the bad mood and it just never worked. It kind of escalated. They would fight a lot. So uh, she just came up with a new game plan. And this is part of what we do is come up with better game plans. The next time he came home from work uh, and it seemed like maybe he was in a bad mood again and she was ready. She thought, you know what? I cannot wait to go out to my garden and play around in the dirt and I'm going to look at my roses. And so she went out there and she started doing that. And do you know, like five minutes later, this guy who's always in a bad mood, he was grabbing his gardening gloves and he was right behind her. Like, what are you doing? You know, I want to come out and play with you in the dirt. So she uh, was able to change that whole dynamic. Right. That's interesting. Now, I just want to fast forward a little bit. We've been talking about uh, surrendering and giving the husband space. And if he's in a mood and if he needs to ask for advice, even if he asks for advice, let him make his own decision. Uh, what's the end game here? Meaning, is, is this a process we're going through? And at the end of the day, we have civility and the, the surrendered true wife is not on the back of the husband. Or is there is there more to the relationship at the end of the day? Oh, much more to the relationship at the end of the day, because there's this uh, because emotional safety is there. So I know. um you know, my husband is much more likely to share what he's thinking, his hopes and dreams for the future, what his vision is for our family. Uh, so we have much more in terms of deep conversations uh, like that. And I, I think he's also feels less weighted down by trying to meet the demands of somebody who's uh, just afraid all the time, which is where control comes from, right? Whenever I was trying to control him in the past, it was because I was afraid. And um, uh, so, and there's a, a lot of playfulness uh, it, just in our day-to-day -day interactions, you know, all the things that you do together as a couple, whether it's sharing meals or, uh, you know, getting up in the morning, going to bed at night, uh, you know, the errands, the, the things that you do for the household. There's um, just so much of a sense of, well, certainly partnership and teamwork, but also uh, the passion is uh, is much higher than it used to be. Uh, so there's, there's much more, yeah, there's much more uh, nice interactions along right. those lines. Right. Now, are, and are you still in the mode of let him make his decisions? Let like if you had, had a disagreement, uh, you, you're still you know tread lightly and give him his uh, his space still. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the things I always say is that um, you always get to choose whether you're going to try to control someone else who isn't you, which you really technically cannot control. I always can make that decision. And sometimes, Mr. Wasserman, I do decide like, oh, I want to try to control this situation. It doesn't always pay off because sometimes it's just an illusion that I could control him to begin with. Um, and, and a lot of times it's not worth the intimacy that it costs me. And so I'm always doing that calculation in my head. Like, is this worth the intimacy? And my default right now is no, that's not worth it because I really value it feels so good to uh, enjoy uh, feeling loved every day. That is 
gives me so much inner strength and confidence. Um, it's so precious to me that there's hardly anything that would make me want to sacrifice that. Right. So I, there's a question that I forgot, but it relates perfectly here is how about if the uh, discussion between the two relates to the children, decisions of are we disciplining enough or and he, he the husband wants to discipline more than the wife and uh, she doesn't want to or what school do we send the kids to and they have a, they have a real disagreement on where they see the kids coming out, their outlooks in life and what direction they should go. How, how do we deal with that? We're, we're in the uh, surrendering mode. No, I'm not getting into the word surrendering, but we're getting into the mode of let him make the decisions, give him space. Does that e- include decisions of that nature? Well, this is uh, where I feel it's really important to um, have, we'll call it a negotiation, uh, where we're both coming from our strengths. So my strengths as a woman are, um, I have emotional brilliance. You know, women are better at expressing their feelings and their desires. My husband is, I feel like the thinker in chief at our house. And so we can have those uh, convictions in those two realms and they don't really uh, conflict. It's kind of magical, actually. Uh, I'll give you an example. When there was the financial crash in 2008, we, we really got hit hard. A lot of our investments went down. Our house went down. We had just bought a new house. Uh, and uh, my husband was really nervous and he manages the finances for us. And he said, I think we're going to have to sell the house and downgrade. We're going to have to downsize to um, a less expensive house. <clears throat> and I said, all right, I, I hear you. I respect that. I know you're um, navigating for our best in- interests. And and I said, and not but, but and I would really love to stay in this house. I love this house. I love where we live. And so he said, all right. And he went away and thought about it some more. And we had that same conversation several times. I think we should sell the house. And I said, I would love to stay. I Yes, I, I respect that. And I will, you know, if, if you think that's so, then we should do that. And I would love to stay here. Now his desire, he is wired to make me happy as I believe that most husbands are. I, you agree with that, Mr. Wasserman? I hope so. <laughs> okay. okay. So, so, uh, he, uh, we, 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 we still have that house. <laughs> we still live in that house. So, uh, we're remodeling that house right now. So, uh, so that was a long time ago. And so my desires colored his thinking in that situation. Now we've had other conversations where his thinking colors my desires, but there's not a conflict because I'm not arguing with his thinking. I'm not saying to him, well, have you really thought this through? Because, you know, the market's going to rebound or, you know, if we uh, sell this and, you know, or, you know, I could have argued logically with his thinking and then uh, we wouldn't have had the same result because that's not me tapping into my husband's desire uh, to be my hero. I wasn't I wouldn't be uh, triggering his hero gene in that sense. But this time, you know, he managed to make it work. And I don't think it was very easy (laughs) at the time. So uh, and we and we got to keep uh, the house that I wanted. And now he looks like a hero. He's my hero. (laughs) Isn't he? Yeah. Mrs. Doyle, I want to thank you so much for joining us. It really uh, sheds a lot of light on on your approach, and uh, we really appreciate it. Oh, it's been such a delight. Thank you so much for the honor of being on your show. Thank you so much.